Good evening, and welcome to Kino Inferno. I am one of your hosts, Aiden the Great, and with me, as always, Mark the Inferior. Say hello, Mark. <laughs> I think I want to now. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Mark the, Mark, the, exactly. Mark the Noble. Mark the Noble. All right, okay, I'll accept that. Okay, I'll take it back. I'll, I'll, I'll take Mark the Noble. I'm fine with that. Welcome to Ye Olde Kino Inferno with Aiden the Great and Mark the Noble. I like that. Are we, we going to now ditch the whole Wario and Waluigi thing in favour of that? or? Um, I don't know, I'm just trying something on for size. Uh, I didn't really have an opening bit for this, so we're just kind of riffing. <laughs> have you noticed how hard this is to start the show when we don't have a story arc anymore? Yeah, 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 but we're episodic, yeah. so it's fine. Um... I mean, serialized now. <laughs> if I'd thought about it, I would have done. Since we're doing, you know, nineties nostalgia sci-fi power hour. If I thought about it, I would have done some kind of like, "Hey, man, we're back in the nineties" kind of thing. But I think that's too obvious. So for some reason, I decided we'd be D and D characters instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up the theme of this uh, week's episode because I couldn't think of a segue, and I'm usually the king of these things. Um, so yeah, this week, 90s sci-fi classics, I believe that's the title. Under, I believe it's underrated 90s sci-fi classics. Hmm. If that was the title, I don't think I would have picked the film that I picked. Um, I think it's underrated because it should be considered as good as Citizen Kane. Actually, yeah, okay, I agree. Um, I mean, most people I know think it's basically the equivalent of Citizen Kane. Um, it's a true masterpiece. Um, I mean, it, it is. It's a true masterpiece. Uh, yeah. Cool. Tipping that hat earlier. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's going to get Kino or Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Stay um, tuned, listeners. So yeah, we should probably say the movies that we have picked for today's episode. Mark has gone for the Fifth Element, uh, sci-fi campy classic. And I have gone for, mm. kind of, we could have done this one next, uh, last week as well, the kind of neo-noir, sci-fi, goth music video, <laughs> Alex Proyas' <laughs> Alex brain vomit that is Dark City. I have to admit, actually, when I was watching Dark City for this episode, I, in my head I was like, oh, we missed a trick not doing this one last week. Well, I almost did it for, I kind of had my cake and it at it because I wanted to do Drive, but I also wanted to do Dark City. So when you suggested The Fifth Element, I was like, actually, I'll, I'll push Dark City along to this. 90s sci-fi. Um, anyway, before we get into things, and we're not going to dwell on this too much, but I thought we should probably do this before we get into talking about, because we're going to talk about the fifth element first. Uh, we should probably cover this base before we then spend like half the episode being like, this movie rules! <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit of housekeeping, you know, we like to keep it tidy here on Kido. So, as I'm sure you cine-literate people are aware... The fifth element was directed by none other than Luc Besson, a French uh, action thriller director slash producer slash general um, mogul, I guess you could say. Um, and it has come to light in recent years as part of the Me Too movement um, that he is a shady character. We're not going to get too much into that, I don't think, but... Um, you know, it's all there on the internet if people do want more of the kind of uh, gruesome details. Uh, suffice to say, there are a lot of allegations against him, uh, largely largely anonymous, and at this point they are just allegations. Uh, a couple have been to court, but I think they were thrown out. But um, 
lack of evidence, I believe, is what was cited, yeah. Yes, which uh, I think it's fair to say our stance is basically like, it doesn't matter if some of the allegations aren't true, because if even one of them is true, he's a monster. Um, yeah, absolutely. So and, is know, kind of, uh, that's kind of our take on that. But I, I think we kind of wanted to get this out of the way now, because uh, obviously The Fifth Element is a very light-hearted movie, and it's a movie that we're both pretty keen on. Um, so we kind of wanted to get this out of the way because uh, I'll just kind of say what my stance on this is and then you can kind of either echo that or just put forward your own ideas, I guess. Um, sure. Basically, my take on this is, because uh, we did Omanara a little bit when uh, we first kind of discussed doing The Fifth Element because of this reason. Um, but first of all, I suppose it's worth saying in the medium of film, uh, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people work on a movie of this uh, scale. So to dismiss the work of all these other people just based on the fact that the guy in charge was a dickhead is kind of, to, to my mind, is like, you know, people might disagree with this. They might be like, well, you know, he wrote and directed it. So it's, it's you know, it's kind of his thing. It's his vision. Uh, I, sl- I somewhat disagree with that. I can ignore the fact that he's a, an asshole because the vast majority of people who worked on it were not. Um, also, the other thing is, with a movie like this that I think both of us kind of watched when have seen many times since we were very young, I kind of feel like you can't really pretend you don't love the movie or it doesn't mean something to you because you've seen it that many times, you know, it's been a part of your life for that long. Um, I mean, this is on a different scale, but I know that like a lot of people have this issue with like JK Rowling at the moment or, or Joss Whedon, where it's like, you know, the, the products that they've created have been a big part of their, you know, media-consuming lives. And these things do matter to people. Like, it's not a trivial thing. I know it's very easy to kind of say, like, well, we should just shun the the creations as well as the creator. But I don't th- I don't think it's as easy as that. Um, I mean, feel free to disagree, anyone listening to this. Um, and if you want to skip the section where we glowingly praise the uh, fifth element, you certainly can. We'll put a times code in the episode description. I mean, you've already hit play on the episode, so you've done as a solid regardless. Um, No, I completely agree with you. I'm very much in that camp of... I do believe in separation of art and artists. I know it's not possible for everybody. I know that there are some people who will, for example, you know, look at Lost Prophets, you know, the famous band, the famous Evo band from all those years ago. Like, most people can't even bring themselves to listen to that band anymore, and I completely understand that. And... Because, you know, they have such an objection to Ian Watkins as a person, and I completely 100% understand that. I was never a fan of them personally, so yeah, you know, it's kind of... doesn't affect me. Um, but it's, you know, I there's a lot of uh, things that I'm a big fan of and things that I love that are created by people who were absolute fucking shithouses and, you know, people that are known for, you know, abuse, both psychological and sexual and that's always something that's going to be playing in the back of your mind when you know about these things in fact there's so there's so many of them now that we could in fact do like a this is in very poor taste so cut this out if you want we could do an uh an in memorandum at the oscars style section it's this and we could just name all the people whose work we've enjoyed who turned out to be monstrous abusers or it'd be like a, an obituary for all the things that we once loved that yeah, now yeah. we know were created by monsters. I mean, you know, and again, like, I, I can separate the art from the artist, but I think my sort of main distinction comes in is if the art is in some way a vessel for the artist to indulge in those things that are morally questionable, then I think that's where, like, and I, I, again, like, that you can sort of, 
I think that's subjective to some people, but yeah. yeah, there are definitely examples where people have used the art as a way of indulging in like abuse and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, Victor Salva comes to mind when you say that. Yeah, with the movie Clown House, which mm. uh, we won't go into, but that's all online as well. But you know, that is a movie that I could never ever bring myself to watch because of what I know about it. Um, yeah, and certainly everyone's everyone's line is different, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, and as I've talked about in this show several times before, like I absolutely adore Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's my favorite TV show ever. Like nothing else touches it to me. It just it means so much to me. And knowing that Joss Whedon is a massive piece of shit does kind of put a dampener on it, but it doesn't really take away from what Buffy means to me and how much I love it and how much it's like influenced me not only in terms of like as a writer and stuff like you know Joss Whedon wrote some fucking incredible episodes of that show that's a shame as a piece of shit but like it's yeah. definitely had an influence and impact on me yeah and that's kind so, of that is uh, to some extent how I feel about uh, Monsieur Besson is uh, you yeah. know, many of his films I've enjoyed immensely um, some of them for the right reasons some of them for the wrong reasons admittedly but um, <laughs> yeah. Valerian anyone what was that about but um, the- Valerian is just the fifth element part two really isn't it it's just more campy sci-fi nonsense and, you know, I can totally understand people being reticent to um, engage with the work of a creator once they find these things out or to kind of, you know, not publicly uh, praise them and, and things like that. Um, so I think what our policy is going to be going forward is uh, we've talked about um, kind of Luke Besson here. Uh, when we get into the actual Fifth Element section, he is going to be nameless to us now and he's just going to be the director. Uh, so that on this podcast, his name is only associated with his terrible, terrible misdeeds. Yeah, I think that's uh, the best policy we can enforce here. Yeah, because it's kind of um, it's a real bummer learning that about him. To be honest, it is. And I should say, for legality's sake, he has always uh, flatly denied the allegations against him, um, and none of them have been proven in a court of law. But there is a point where you have to go. You know, no smoke without a fire, right? Like, a lot of people mm. came out of the woodwork. And it, yeah, sh- it should be said lot. that uh, f- the French film industry's Me Too movement was very um, contentious. And uh, this is not the place to uh, talk about that. But, um, yeah, there's a, a, a still ongoing upheaval uh, around France's uh, film industry in particular, where this stuff was uh, running pretty rampant. So now that we've, you know, done the housekeeping and submerged ourselves in that pit of darkness, um, mm. let's talk about the fifth element. Yes, uh, which is a, a beacon of light in the darkness as a movie. Uh, it really is. So, yeah, let's do it. Here he is, the one and only winner of the Gemini Crockett Contest. This boy is fueled like fire. So start melting, ladies, because the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot. Hot! hot. <laughs> right sides, right bills, right head, right on. Right on, right on. Right on, right on. And he got something to say to those 50 billion pair of ears out there. Pop it, D-Man. Uh, hi. Unbelievable! 
In both the unbelievably garish and consumerist nightmare year of 2263, an ancient and unknowable evil rises once again on the far reaches of space and sets its sights on destroying the Earth. The planet's only chance of survival rests upon four stones, one comprised of each element, as well as the fifth element, a supposed perfect being that is the key to the evil's destruction. What should be a simple endeavour to vanquish the evil ball of fire becomes a farcical romp across space that sees a ragtag group of two priests, an ex-military man turned cab driver, a divine entity, and perhaps the most disturbing and sex-crazed radio DJ since Jimmy Savile banding together to unite the elements and vanquish the evil for good. Along the way, they'll bear witness to opera-singing aliens, get into many a gunfight, and maybe even broadcast the finest radio programme ever made. It's wild, it's visually beautiful, it's the ultimate Sunday afternoon movie. It's the fifth element. You've all seen it. You all love it. Don't pretend you don't because you're lying. Okay? We all love this movie. Just accept it. Move on. Okay? Yeah. True. 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 Facts. 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 So, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. We both love this movie. When was the first time you saw the fifth element? Um... I couldn't tell you like exactly when it was, but I know that no, I, I want you to tell me. I want you to tell time. me exactly. I want you to tell me exactly. It was June twenty sixth in the year two thousand and three. I don't. I don't fucking know. Uh, I remember <laughs> I watched it on TV with my dad. I remember that vividly. Um, hmm. And I just, I remember just being really kind of enthralled by it. And I think it was, it was one of those movies where as soon as it finished, I just wanted to watch it again. But I watched it on TV, so you know. You couldn't. So I remember like finding it on DVD as soon as I possibly could and stuff because it was just so visually arresting. And it, again, thinking back on it, I watched this movie quite a lot when I was younger as soon as I got the DVD because I just loved it so much. And thinking back on the films that kind of got me interested in film, it was that definitely this is one of them. But um, I've mentioned before, Kill Bill Volume 1 I saw at an age when I should not have seen it. But that completely blew my tiny little mind and I was you know obsessed with that movie as well. And I think it's because they're both very visually distinctive movies. They're very bright, very colourful. Um, there's a lot of thought put into every single aspect of like the production design. And I think those are the kinds of movies that I'm ultimately always drawn to. I mean, we mentioned Valerian earlier. And most people didn't like Valerian, but I know we did. Yeah. Well, and that's all that matters, where really. Cara Delevingne puts her head up a jellyfish's ass. So. How is that not the best film that came out that year? How, how is that not cinema? Um, yeah. yeah, no, I'd echo your thoughts. I saw this movie pretty young. Um, I think my dad taped this off of the telly, actually. This was one of the movies that we had on uh, not-legal VHS, I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> and I subsequently had it on DVD and on Blu-ray and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of always a go-to movie. Like, I, It's a film where if people tell me they haven't seen it, it's like, okay, we'll watch this then. Um it's a movie that pretty early on in a relationship, I will be like, if, if you've not seen this, let us slap this bad boy on. Um, it's kind of, it's the ultimate kids movie for adults, I think, where... Yeah, I'd agree with you there, actually. It's very cartoony, very kind of comic booky, and it's it's got a very simple sort of premise as well. Yeah, and I think it works for kids and adults, although there is some fairly risque content in the movie that we'll get to later. Um, yeah, they really. Which I'm is. always slightly <laughs> surprised by. Um, mind you, in French, you know what they're like. Mm. And um, well, yeah, there's also like a degree of violence in the movie as well. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, um, but the violence is very comic booky and. Uh, yeah, it's not like particularly bloody and gory, but like a lot of people get shot in this movie. Yeah, but it's um, mostly you know, mostly space orcs. True, and yeah, Milo beats people up. 
and yeah. you know, lucky aliens. Um, oh, mommy stuff on me. <laughs> I mean, this is this is something we'll get into uh, a bit more. But this is the Mila Jovovich movie, right? Like, oh yeah, like she's kind of the star of the film. Really, like everybody else around her is brilliant. Don't get me mm. wrong, but well, she is the I, fifth I, element. She's the title character. Yeah. Mark. And this is actually something that I was thinking about when watching it, like, because nowadays when you think of Billy Overwatch, what do you think of? Uh, Resident Evil. Yeah, you think of those mostly fucking dire Resident Evil movies. That I think of the lovely marriage she obviously has with Paul W. S. Anderson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even that um, they are married and they constantly make films together. They do. And terrible, that, terrible movies, but you know. yeah. Yeah, even that Three Musketeers movie that he made, somehow she was an action hero in that movie. Where she plays Milady de Winter. God, read a book, I didn't man. see it. I just saw the trailer and just saw Meliovich with like swords. I was like, of course she's in this. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Milady is a villain from the uh, original novel. Um, oh, well, there you go then. Well, I'm villain slash me. love interest of one of the Musketeers. Um, I've read a book in my life. This is just another one where I'm like, I've read a book. <laughs> that movie is in no way accurate to the book, by the no, way. No, I don't imagine it is, to be honest. Um, I mean, even their latest project together, they did a movie based on the Monster Hunter games, and they shoehorn in the fact that Meliovich is supposed to be like a, a, a super trained soldier who gets transported to the land of monsters. I was like, the, none of this was in the game. <laughs> You could have just gone, there's a fantasy land and there are monsters. Like, it boils my piss more than it should. Um, but no, going back to what I was originally going to say, is this movie's such a great reminder of how great an actress she actually is. Yeah, she certainly but, can be, given the right uh, material. Yeah, you just don't tend to see it because she's just kind of nestled into this little niche of being an action hero and, you know, not an especially great one at that. Yeah, well, she's kind of an action hero in this, but she's also um, she's got a bit more dimension to her, I suppose. Yeah, she but, she gets more to do in this movie because yeah. she goes from you know she gets the scene where she first gets brought to life, um, where she's kind of almost feral and afraid, and you slowly see her sort of almost like regain her intelligence essentially and like grow like empathy and stuff like that. Like you really sort of see a lot of development of Lilo throughout yeah, when the movie. She downloads she plays the internet scene. into her brain and has a break. She does, yeah. Which, I was like at the time I thought was corny, but now that we've had what, twenty years of mass internet, I'm like, ooh, actually. <laughs> I, yeah, understand. I think they were onto something there. <laughs> yeah. 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 She saw Reddit before <laughs> And she was I like, like to think, why, why save the world when there is only hate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do feel like that bit at the end where she looks at war. Like, she's <laughs> yeah. just reading Reddit. <laughs> um, so we should kind of breeze through the plot of this movie a little bit. Um, and we're using the term plot fairly lightly in this case. It is pretty much goodies versus baddies across several locations. Um we should say the, the director of this wrote the movie when he was a teenager and supposedly changed very little for when they actually made the movie as an, as an adult. Um, I can see that. Which, yeah, it, it's it, the way that the plot moves forward in this movie, it kind of has that energy to it where it's, it's as if like it's being told to you by a child. It's like a story being told to you by a child. It kind of jumps yeah. up and down really kind of sporadically and there's a lot of characters and things that mesh together that in most other movies just wouldn't work. And it's but aesthetically drawing a lot from 
French and Belgian comics. So Franco-Belgian comics, they kind of, I don't know if you're aware of this, they kind of have their own kind of cottage industry of like, uh, they have a lot of spy type stuff, uh, kind of pulpy adventure stuff, but they also have a lot of kind of, basically Flash Gordon-esque space opera. So uh, Valerian Air Laurelie. Yeah, I know that's a comic series. The basis for Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Obviously the most famous Franco-Belgian comic is Tintin. Um, obviously, slightly but, younger audience, but uh, I mean, Bruce Willis kind of resembles Tintin in this movie, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but this movie is definitely riffing on like Valerian et Laurelie and all these other kind of um, pulpy French sci-fi, campy space operas, right? Um, and this movie, even though it's it's an American production or it's a French American production, it is intrinsically very French in the way it, it works. Um, you know, aesthetically, I mean, the movie, the, the the costume design, and I think some of the set design was done by Jean-Paul Gaultier, for God's yes, sake. Uh, yeah. And this yeah. is very much a future designed by a middle-aged French homosexual. Because <laughs> our, our big buff action hero, Bruce Willis, is running around in that fucking orange, like, I don't even know what it is, it's like rubber vest that he's running around yeah. in this movie. It, it's, yeah, it's like, is it mesh? Is it rubber? Could I strain tea leaves through it? I don't really know. I can't. Tell. Everyone is dressed in this kind of like, um, like even the politicians and like the like uh, Gary Oldman is the villain. Uh, Zorg is like this ultra capitalist. They're all wearing these weird like campy like Star Trek uniforms. I'm just saying it right now. Every single thing that Gary Oldman wears in this movie is a look. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? That like that weird plastic like half skull cap <laughs> so that he has on. Good. It's so good with that kind of like Bob, almost pixie style haircut. Yeah, he's got like oh, a it's half so bob. It's so good. It's so good. He's got good. like a fascist bob. Do you know he hates this movie? Yeah, no, I've heard that. Yeah, um, apparently I'm, I'm, he feels the same about every film he's done with uh, the director as well. Apparently they're just yeah. not his cup of tea. Um, uh, well, I, I think a lot of that is they had a big falling out for reasons mm. that are not entirely clear. Yeah, I suppose there's probably some stuff we don't know about there, but I did see the uh, interview quote where he got asked about the fifth element, mm. and uh, he just went, oh no, I can't bear it. <laughs> that was his response. He said that this movie is him singing for his supper because the director part-financed uh, Nil by Mouth, which was Gary yes. Oldman's directorial yeah. debut? I yes, it was, yeah. Which, have you seen Nil by Mouth? Yeah, by it's like the, the polar opposite of the fifth element. <laughs> oh, mate, it's, uh, whew, that is a film that if you want to ruin your day... Watch Nil yeah. by Mouth. Um, absolute tour de force performance by Kathy Burke, though. Like, she's yeah, unbelievably yeah. amazing in that. Um, Supposedly, yeah, her, her and Oldman have had many falling outs over the years. I think Gary Oldman, um, I'm going to say, <clears throat> allegedly, in case uh, lawyers are listening, um, Gary Oldman supposedly is not the easiest man to get along with. No, and I imagine as well, Kathy Burke is, well, I say I'm mad, you don't have to imagine it, Kathy Burke is a very outspoken woman, so yeah. like if uh, if Gary Oldman was being a bit of a prick, she would have absolutely called him out on it. Mm. God anyway, bless we're her, getting, we, we, we're, we're, we're a pro-Burke so podcast. We are a pro-Burke podcast, and Kathy, if you're listening, get on, come on the pod. Um, can you, um, oh my god, I would die. <laughs> come on next <laughs> week and talk about Paul Blart Cup with us. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna DM her on Twitter. This is happening. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah. Wait a minute. So we're getting sidetracked. Let's let's film. let's move through the plot of this movie as best we yeah. can. So right, so the movie start opens. Start the film. Mark. It opens, Mark. The opening of the film, Mark, is uh, Cairo, nineteen. 
Um, 14. 1914, there we go. Um, it's in the <laughs> olden <you>. days <laughs> when British people used to look at pyramids and go, let's nick everything that's not nailed down. Um, and that is indeed what ah, is transpiring. The, <laughs> the good old days of the British Empire. Um, although I think they're actually, because uh, uh, I think they're American actually, even though I've said that. But um, basically, we, you know, white folk used to go over to Egypt and nick anything that wasn't nailed down and put it in museums. And that is indeed what's happening at the start of this movie. Would you like to pick up the story from there, Mark? Uh, so whilst that's happening, it seems like what they're uncovering is um, a tomb in which the four stones that can defeat the ancient evil that is the antagonist of the movie, um, that's where it's contained. And so as they're dusting these down stones, walls they're like For anyone who hasn't seen it, they're like these prism-shaped. Yeah, uh, quite large stones. as well, which is yeah. something we'll we need to, to talk about. Because we'll get to that. If you <laughs> yeah, had them inside you, they would be uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't think you'd be able to sing with those things inside you. <laughs> well, certainly not, but we'll get there. In this um, opening scene so, in Cairo, 1914, what's So in Cairo, they are basically about to uncover this yeah, this collection of stones, uh, and then the this giant alien ship just appears out of nowhere, and these Power Rangers villain-looking motherfuckers show up. That's the only way I can describe what these guys are. They look like yeah, they're, they're like these big gold dudes with like massive bodies and tiny little heads. Yeah, and they kind of wobble everywhere. It's it's very charming. It's very very. Charming. They kind of look like what they look like to me. Yeah, they've got that Power Rangers vibe, but it's like Power Rangers if Power Rangers was Warhammer forty k. <laughs> That's exactly what they look like. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. But we've 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 skipped over the best character in the movie though, which is Aziz. <laughs> what the little kid? Who yeah, has the to little reflect the light. <laughs> the little kid is holding up a reflective surface so the professor can see the hieroglyphs. Because we should say the prof- there's a professor type guy and some young guy who are excavating this tomb. And then, like, the priest turns up. This Jedi motherfucker turns up. And he's trying to kill the professor because he tries to poison his wine. Um, well, he tries to poison his water. But then yes, he's uh, like, oh, let's drink a toast. And the professor's like, you can't drink a toast with water. Fuck you, you dumb motherfucker. And uh, anyway, then the gold-looking dudes turn up. And uh, I'm always a little confused by why the Arab Jedi needs to kill the professor. Like To stop him from uncovering... The, the secret, essentially, because he... It's it's not, like, explicitly stated, but essentially the priest is part of a long-running order who work alongside these aliens to um, protect the the stones and the fifth elements because this, e- this evil rises every 5,000 years. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, that's clear. But my thing is also, when the big ball... Like, when we cut to the future and there's the big ball of evil... Um, it would certainly seem to be the case that it would be helpful if everyone knew about the big ball of evil and the fifth element and everything. Because yeah, a lot of this it's movie... it's going to come up. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> these gold motherfuckers, they return in the future and they're like, hey, got that fifth element you ordered? And everyone's just kind of like, what? What are you yeah, talking like, about? And it just seems yeah. to me like uh, maybe we should have, like, I don't know, worked to further understanding but anyway the point is this in cairo the gold motherfucker gives the priest a key which is the key to the box right that opens the stones i think is the idea uh, it's the key to the temple 
Um, oh, the key to the temple. Because, sure. yeah, oh, yeah, when, sure, when, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because basically when they're in Cairo, he's about to gain access to um, the chamber where the four um, stones are used to destroy the evil. So it's about them trying to keep it... Uh, keep it safe and that's why the aliens show up because they say that the stones are no longer safe on earth because they're about to discover it and obviously like what they would likely do those stones would be end up in a fucking museum somewhere yeah. so they take well, the stones away and then they've been yeah. watching egypt and they've seen the, the guys from the british <laughs> museum just fucking looting the place i'm talking these trying to help these motherfuckers and they these motherfuckers were taking mummified skeletons mark and eating them that's that's a true historical fact. That is, yeah. They just a ate a couple. They just ate a couple of the mummies. <laughs> Look, I'm not, you know, the British Empire was a bad thing, but they were absolute mad lads at the same time. Like, what is that? <laughs> Who sees a mummy and goes, "I'm going to eat that." Yum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, you know something, Jenkins? That looks tasty. <laughs> just opening a sarcophagus, like you peckish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they say that British cuisine is dry and unflavoured, but that is taken first. <laughs> Just reminds me um, of home, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So finally, something dusty and unseasoned. <laughs> Had enough of this flavourful foreign food. <laughs> uh, so. After Cairo, we then jump ahead to 2263, which I believe is the year that I said, um, where the evil has risen and the president of the Galactic Empire, who is played by... Uh, sorry, before we... Uh, it's, it's, ti- it's played by Tiny, Tiny Lister. Lister Jun- Tommy Tiny Lister Jr., that's his name. Yeah, who was also a repeat offender because he was in Jackie Brown. But we forgot to say was, this. Because yes. um, I wanted to flag this up because it's in my notes. The funniest death scene ever is when the the temple is closing and the gold guy's like trying to waddle towards the doors and the priest is there like, you must hurry, my friend. Come, come, you'll still have time. And the gold guy's clearly assessed it and he's just like, nope, not going to make it. And he just like pokes the key through the, the gap. It made me laugh as a kid and it makes me laugh now because clearly there's an internal process in this weird future cyborg guy where he's like, I cannot waddle fast enough. It's simply not happening. <laughs> Yeah, like, why are they the Guardians of the Stones? They're, like, really ineffectual. We'll we'll get into this, because as you say, we cut to the future. Tiny Lister, as the president of uh, whatever, the Federation or what have you, he's like, there's a big ball of evil, and that's causing us some problems. And the gold guys eventually... Yeah, they try and shoot at it, because that's what you do. um, And obviously evil begets evil, so it gets bigger. Yeah, yeah. Um... But eventually the gold guys show up and they're like, hey, we've got the weapon to kill the thing. And then these space orc motherfuckers show up and just blow them to fuckery and back. So here's the thing about that. These gold guys are not the most effective protectors of the fifth element. And they had the gall to pretend that the stones wouldn't be safer in the British Museum. Because let me tell you something. That British Museum has been there for a hundred or so years, right? And not a single fucking thing that has gone into that museum has gone back out again. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> so, yeah, gold motherfuckers. Look at the I want to see the scene now where, where they turn up to the British Museum and we're just there like, nope, don't think we'll be giving that back. <laughs> Look, it's got a sticker that says property of the museum. On your back. <laughs> 
So giant ball of evil is going to make its way towards Earth. Uh, we then cut to our protagonist, well, one of our protagonists, uh, Corbin Dallas, who is played by Bruce Willis, and this is definitely one of my favorite Bruce Willis performances. It's, it's kind yeah. of almost the quintessential Bruce Willis character, aside from him playing um, uh, John, John McClane in Die Hard. I mean, there's a lot of John McClane in this movie. He's kind of like a goofier John McClane, I think. Like, he's more yeah. comedic. Like, Bruce he's... is definitely playing to his kind of, like, what kind of com- comedic <laughs> moments. He gets a lot I, of sort of cheesy one-liners that are really yeah. fun. Um... And since we're talking about Corbin Dallas, one thing that I liked about him on this rewatch is um, he kind of has, like, he has that John McClane element, like he's an ex-Special Forces guy. They kind of say at one point, like, oh, he knows every weapon, he knows every... You know, he could just, you know, he's a, he's a Superman, basically. But they, he's also like, kind of like a lovesick teenager in this movie. Like, as soon as he yeah. meets uh, Lilu, he's like immediately infatuated with her. And although he has this kind of like alpha male, like, I'm the action guy, blah, blah, blah. He has some genuinely funny scenes, like, um, we're jumping around a bit and we'll get back into the flow of it in a minute. But when the, uh, you know, the old general turns up to give him his, uh, his mission, um, Lilu turns up at his apartment, and he's like trying to hide. He's like trying to hide the uh, the military <laughs> people, and he's acting like it's his parents and his new girlfriends turned up. But it's really like he plays those moments really funny. And um, yeah, I've got to give props to Bruce for this because like he is playing an archetypal Bruce Willis character, but he finds this kind of like slightly comedic and I think like kind of sweet vibe to Corbin that that makes this movie work. Because this movie could be, and uh, I'm going to point to Valerian because same director. The two leads in that have zero chemistry. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, they really do. I mean, Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne are not the best actors at no. the best of times <laughs> no. in that movie opposite each other. And no. <laughs> having looked at the comic books, like, they are not even anywhere near the characters. Like, actually, Bruce Willis and Millie Overvick would have been a much better pick back in, if they'd done that movie in the 90s. But um, anyway, that aside. Uh... What was I saying? Yeah, so I, I kind of I like that Bruce Willis is kind of dialed into the tone of this movie because often when you see latter day Willis movies, with a few exceptions, he is kind of just sleepwalking through it. Whereas I feel like, um, and in fact, you know, he is kind of variable. He, I mean, he's retired now, as we know, but he was kind of uh, variable at times as an actor. But I think when he was working with a director that he could really dial in on their tone. Like, if you think of, like, an M. Night Shyamalan, like, you know, not all of their movies together are amazing. Well, they do that many, but... Um, but, like, they really work well together. Or I think of him in, like, Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie, which is kind of a latter-day Bruce Willis performance. He's great in that. Um, and I think it is just that thing of, like, when he's working with a director who's kind of a strong hand at the wheel, but also has this, like, thing that they can point to and go, like, this is what we're doing. I need you to, like, fit your Bruce Willis thing into that. He, he can really excel. And I think that's what he's doing here. Like, he's really kind of... He is doing his Bruce Willis in his heyday kind of action comedy star thing. But it's got that very um, exaggerated kind of, like... He has that kind of... Those puppy dog moments with uh, Miljovovic, which kind of add the sort of... I, I don't know quite know how to put it. Kind of add, like, a sweetness to it that I think really helps sell this movie. 
I think it's because, like, at the beginning of the movie, he, he very much makes it clear that he's done with the military because the military is what uh, cost him his marriage, and yes. so he just doesn't want to be that guy anymore. And it, it is kind—it of, does kind of feel like it's a movie with Bruce Willis being like, "I don't want to be Die Hard anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I just not be Die Hard? Let me do comedy." Like he was in "Look Who's Talking" around yeah. this time as well. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's you know, true. He was trying that's to do true. movies like that, and yeah, it, it kind of feels like that Sam uh, Neill Jurassic Park well. three thing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and as I say, he was trying to launch his singing career at this time. Yeah, yeah that's very true. Um, from what I read, <laughs> apparently he was incredibly it. enthusiastic about the script for this. Uh, apparently the director gave him the script and he sat down, read it, and then went straight back to him and said, I'll do it. So Yeah, I've read um, that too. I've read that too, um, which is, yeah. again, when you think of reports of latter-day uh, Willis, he's not always so uh, on the ball. But, yeah, um, or just just infused generally, yeah. you know. But I think it really shines through in this movie. Like he he obviously handles the action stuff really well. Uh, one yeah. thing that I'm always surprised about this movie is there's not actually that many action scenes with him in it. There's like the car chase towards the start where he helps uh, Lilu escape, and then that's like, more visual effects than yeah. him, isn't it? Like, yeah. And then there's and it's more of a comedic sequence anyway because it's kind of the back and forth between them. But then, and then there is like the pure diehard moment, and when they get to Flostum Paradise later on, where he is just like taking out space orcs left and right, and it is very yeah. But again, it's very slips completely back into that. Yeah, yeah, and he's and that's the thing. It's one extended sequence of that, and the director, you know, to his credit, um, he said begrudgingly, knows exactly (laughs) how to use Bruce Willis in that scene. It's like he knows at this point everyone wants to see a bit of Die Hard here, right? And for most of this movie, you know, Bruce is kind of comedic, kind of, you know, he's this guy who doesn't really want to get involved in the story, basically, right? Yeah. <laughs> but he, he gets involved because he fancies the girl. Um, yeah. But then there's that scene where he, you know, he just takes charge and he's just, like, one-shotting people in the head and all the rest of it, and he's, you know... And there's the great bit where, uh, you know, they send out the, the leader to negotiate and he knows if you take out the Space Orc leader, the rest of them just fold. Um, <laughs> you know, and he has that case, you know, has the one liner, anyone else want to negotiate? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and there's all that stuff. And, uh, you know, he plays it very well. Like I say, it's this big, like, over-the-top bombastic action scene in the middle of this movie. But that's, like, the one Bruce Willis action scene you get. And yeah, it, that's... It's him surrounded by like Ruby Ruby Rod and like all the, who we'll get to, we'll get to. We we have to talk about Ruby Rod, yes. And there's like uh, the weird like deaf guy movie star, <laughs> and there's like there's all these like comedic bits around it that I think really help it not just feel like oh we're just doing Die Hard again. Like it gives you what you want, but in the sense it's like ah oh, here's some John McClane type stuff, but it's surrounded by all this com- comedic business, you know. Oh, it's great. It's just so great. Mm. Um, so Corbin is, uh, yeah, he now works as a taxi driver for Zorg as well, who is uh, one of the antagonists. Yes, that's a subtle detail that they slip in. Yeah, um, and one of my, this is one of my favourite details of the movie as well, um, and it's it's something that a lot of people do talk about, and I feel like it's something that we're going to have to mention. But the fact that like technically the protagonist, which is Corbin, even though you have Lilu and stuff, and the mm. antagonist, even though you have the big evil, is Zorg. They never meet. And no. they're not even aware of each other's involvement in the whole thing between the stones and all that. Like they 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 share the one shot in the movie towards the end, but they don't interact with each other. They don't even like. Well, Zorg is aware of Corbin. He knows who Corbin is, but mm. he doesn't know that Corbin is trying to get the stones. He just knows yes. that Corbin won the trip to Floston Paradise, which he tries to hijack. Yeah, yeah. He's completely unaware of what 
Corbin's actually doing. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing about this film. There's like a lot of factions. That, it's almost an ensemble piece. Like yeah. we have the the president and all his guys. Then we have like uh, Zorg, you know, who we've said is this kind of comic villain, Gary Oldman over the top performance. But then he's got all his little lackeys. Um, and then also there's Corbin, who's kind of you know an outside actor who gets dragged into it by the by the president's guys, right? And yeah. then you have the two priests. You have Ian Holm and the younger guy, um, and like Lilu there, and they're kind of like their own faction because they're like the guy. They're like the ones who are like, oh, we're concerned about this mystical cosmic evil and the stones and all the rest of it. Oh, and then then you have the space orcs who yeah, the uh, which are called the the Mondo Shawan. That's what they're called. Yeah, but they're space orcs. Space um, orcs. Yeah, and they've got their own business going on because of Zor. Yes. Because they were trying to get the stones uh, on his at his behest, uh, in exchange for his weapons. Uh, because they got they managed to get the case, but the stones weren't in it. He fucked them over, and so they then tried to fuck him over by getting the stones and selling them back to him at a ridiculous market. Which, yeah, and um, it's also the thing with the Mondo Shaw is like there's a, it's almost like a throwaway line of dialogue, but he mentions how like the weapons that they're trying to get from Zorga for the cause because they've been uh, like what's it like railroaded by society or something that he says to yeah. that effect. So like they're like an oppressed species. Well, we <laughs> see later on, then because back. because they can shapeshift. Uh, we see later on when they're pretending to be Corbin, the they scan for the uh, genetic yeah, makeup true, of the actually, character, yeah. and it comes up on the. Um, flight attendants screen of like dangerous species yeah so um yeah i mean they do seem to be a dangerous species it has to be yeah definitely um and again like we will get back to the plot we will we'll breeze through the plot and then we're gonna have to character rank this movie i hope you're aware of that yeah i think that's the way to go i think that's the way to go yeah um but one of the things that I like the most about this movie, and I think it's one of the reasons why I keep going back to it and why it very much kind of captured my imagination as a kid, like, the world is really well-developed and fleshed out, even though you only see little sort of tidbits of aspects of the world. Like, there's so many just things, little tiny details that are just so unique to this movie. Like, I always think about the cigarettes in this movie. Yes. That are, like, all filter, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, tobacco. <laughs> The main cigarette is the filter, and then the yeah, there's like a little <laughs> yeah. tiny bit of tobacco. It's, it's like a reverse cigarette. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, you're only allowed five a day and you have to quit and stuff mm. like that. And there's little things like that. There's these little touches that really make that world feel very lived in. Um, yeah, and there's like things like in, the... in his apartment, they have the like the two uh, circles on the wall that you have to put yep. your hands on if the cops raid the building. Because they and clearly like... just live in a police state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, well, it's implied that he lives in, like, a shitty area of town. Yeah, like well. a yeah, slummy apartment building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I like that implication that, yeah, there's this weird, like, protocol. that They never really explain why they do that or what the purpose of it is. But, yeah, like you said, there's all these kind of details that are just kind of tossed out in the background. Well, like one of the most famous visuals in this movie, the flying cars, right? Yeah. yeah, it's, just yeah. Like, it's just a thing that is just part of this world. And oh, it's just yeah, there's just so many just little bits like that that just make me really really love this movie again. Like again, like the costume design by Jean Paul Gaultier, like it's just uh, this the, the look and the way people dress in this movie. I mean, why does Lilu basically wear like a rubber mankini on top of her clothes throughout most of this movie? It makes no sense. <laughs> well, I've I always it. thought that was the influence of meeting Corbin with his uh, rubber vest thing that he's got going on. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a nice compliment, but like we see that when the priests bring her the clothes, that's the first thing that she picks up, and yeah, she's like yeah. super into it. So. Yeah, uh, I like the machine that Spy Kids definitely ripped off. 
um, the machine that instantly makes food from pellets. I like that. Well, that's in Star Trek as well before this. I, I know, but Spy Kids clearly ripped this off. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's a movie we should talk about. <laughs> we definitely should. So yeah, we should say, in terms of plot, just to breeze through it so we can get onto character rankings, because I think that's the way we need to go. So, yeah. yes, uh, Lilu, uh well, when the gold guy's spaceship is blown up, the fifth element is also killed, but they're able to reconstitute her from genetic material that was lying around. And um, they do, and they create Lilu, Mila Jovovich, who escapes the facility, falls into Corbin's flying taxi. Corbin's like, fuck it, she's a hot chick, I'll help her out. Um, and obviously that's a kind of an iconic sequence in this movie where she's running around with those... Uh, the bandages, bandages. Yeah, thermal bandages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah quote-unquote thermal bandages. Yeah, I mean, it's an iconic look and has been cosplayed to death at this point. Yeah. But, like, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, it's just such a fucking well thought out design. Like, it just looks mm. great. Well, that's what you get when you have uh, John Paul Gautier on the payroll, I guess. That's um, yeah, true, actually. <laughs> I imagine him just reading the script going, she's wrapped in bandages. How do yeah. I make that both gay and sexy? <laughs> this movie's pretty gay. For a movie that contains it's no so actual gay. homosexuality, it is pretty fucking gay it's but we'll, um, gay. <laughs> it uh, is a we'll camp classic you know so yeah anyway long story short uh lilu uh, eventually hooks up with the priest played by ian holm and his young uh, like novice guy uh they say they're going to look after her uh, and in order to do so they have to acquire the stones which are being looked after by this character the diva who's a blue alien who sings opera don't worry about it um from then on, well, the military decides they want uh, Corbin to go after the stones, um, and they said, and in order to do so, they send him on a holiday. He wins a radio competition that they rigged to go to Floston Paradise, which is where the diva's performing. Um, so, long story short, the various contingents that we've mentioned all end up in Floston Paradise, which seems to be an interstellar like cruise ship. Question yeah, mark? like. Like yeah, it's it's like a cruise ship slash condensed version of somewhere like Dubai. It's clearly where like rich people just go to be yeah. rich, essentially. And this is where we're introduced to the greatest character in cinema, uh, Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. I'm the... so glad you feel that way because I was I was waiting to find out what you think of Ruby Rod because as much as this movie is so beloved by so many people, Ruby Rod remains the real sort of you know lightning rod of controversy as it were people either love him or think that he is the worst creation ever and i'm in the camp that ruby rod is fucking fantastic and i don't think chris tucker has been better in any of them <laughs> well i agree with one of the reviews i don't have in front of me who wrote it maybe it was roger ebert but they uh, where they basically said uh, that um chris tucker is this summer's most uh, outrageous special effect and <laughs> i have to agree with that because he comes in and he is a change of pace in this already quite insane movie. Because he is playing, for the benefit of people who haven't seen this, he is dressed like Prince the entire time. And he is, I mean, you know Chris Tucker, but he is that times a million in this. He's even more manic than in like Rush Hour or anything like that. And he is, like, he out carries Jim Carrey in this movie. Like he right? does. Like, like This is like Jim Carrey Riddler levels of energy, but somehow less annoying. Just more well, I think it helps. I think. I think it helps that the character is supposed to be annoying. Like, 
yeah like, that's the idea isn't it is it like yeah. like because as soon as um corbin meets ruby rod he's just like oh my god i fucking hate this guy um <laughs> yeah and i like the uh, yeah the interplay between uh ruby rod and corbin is great as well i think that's the thing that actually helps sell it as well as like because he pairs he's so often paired with um bruce willis in this movie like they, they're kind of energies contrast in a way that's quite nice um anyway and i just no matter how many times I see this movie, any it's d- during the big action scene at the end, any time Chris Tucker just has to scream, it's just the funniest thing ever. <laughs> like, it's so funny. I mean, he is the source of all the great quotes in this movie that we like to yeah. yell at each other. I don't want one position, I want all positions. <laughs> to this day, if someone's annoying me, I'll just go... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a classic manoeuvre from Mark, just to... Just to shush people away. Um, we also used to like. Super What's your green. favorite Ruby Rod moment? Like, there's so um, many good ones. I have to say, my favorite moment is his last moment in the film, uh, which, <laughs> yeah. which we'll get to, where he just fucks off out of the movie. I think it's the best. The best. He's, he's just like, damn, there's always something going on. A grenade or a bomb going off every five minutes. Fuck this, I'm going home. He doesn't say fuck this, but where's the bad part? <laughs> But the be- I think the best line is his first line, where like after they say the word, everyone's cheering. He's like, "What y'all screaming for?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just love the fact that he's just like, "I'm fucking done with you people. I'm gone. Like you guys are insane. I don't want anything more to do with us." I do like that he kind of gets press ganged into going to the temple. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no real reason for them to take Ruby with them. They just do. <laughs> Ah, uh, so great. I'm glad you have the same thoughts on Ruby Rod as me, because I just think he's fantastic. I mean, and I, I like Chris Tucker and a lot of other stuff as well. Like, uh, I'm a big fan yeah. of Friday. This movie's actually a little Friday reunion, yeah, because t- Chris Tucker Lister, and uh, yeah. Tiny Lister were both in that. Um, and they're both so... in Jackie Brown as well, so they're both repeat. Yes, they are, actually, yeah. So... Um, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that they're both in that, actually. But anyway, the point um, is this. The diva has the stones inside her. Um, somehow. Our heroes get the stones. Uh, Zorg gets blown up in the chaos of Flost and Paradise because the space orcs turn up and they shoot everything to fuckery. Um, everyone. Oh, and uh, Lilu gets battered because she has a kung fu fight with them. It's a whole thing. Yeah, Zorg shoots. Oh, her. then Zorg shoots her in the uh, in the in the ceiling vents as well. Um, and also, she's feeling despair because she's looked at the internet for five minutes. Um, <laughs> understandable. Uh, <laughs> we, she went on 4chan and saw that story about the My Little Pony doll in the jar and it was just she, learned, she learned what Chris Chan is um, and <laughs> she learned what bussy means <laughs> and decided enough is enough and the human race anyway they get, to the te- they get to the temple they figure out that they've got to use the various elements that correspond to the various stones to open them up so they use a lighter to uh, open the fire one a bit of sweat for the water one. He blows on the air and the air one, and they put a bit of dirt on the earth one. Um, but how to activate the fifth element itself? Because Lilu is all catatonic and sad. Um, turns out all you've got to do is be like, "I love you, baby," and uh, that's enough. And long story short, big wash of power. They destroy the evil comet. Everyone's happy. Movie ends with Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich doing it in a tube. Is that, not how the movie ends? Well. <laughs> is that not how the movie ends it's they true. are just but... having a swift one whilst a bunch of scientists pretend they're not looking um, <laughs> it's true it's genuinely how this film ends 
So because the president wants to <laughs> wants to congratulate them, and they're just like, oh, give them like five minutes. I'm like, wow, yeah. you don't think a whole lot of Bruce Willis, do you? <laughs> well, I I've always assumed that they were just doing it since they got in the tube. Like, it's been an all day situation. Like, he's just puffing out a bit of cheesy dust at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Jesus Christ. Um, I know what to say. It's time for character rankings. <laughs> Before we get into the bulk of it, though, there's one character I really want to shout out who I don't really see get brought up enough um, when this movie gets discussed. And you never see this character. This character, you only ever hear them. I want to flag up Corbin's mum. Yes. Because I love that character who she only ever calls Corbin just to complain about her life and how mm. awful of a son Corbin is and how he just doesn't do anything for her. I just think she's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's in the uh, the last scene as well where she's ringing about Cor- about uh, Corbin. And she talks to, his, talks to Tiny Lister as the president. So, no, don't start. You're not the president. The president's an idiot. You don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's always really. I just like it when she calls Corbin up and she's like, "You bastard! I can't believe you do this." <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. how she opens the call. <laughs> I mean, that's not dissimilar to how my mother uh, answers the phone to me. To be honest, but there you go. Um, shout out, but yeah, okay. So obviously, Corbin's mum, ten out of ten character. Let's oh, absolutely go through. Um, so we've talked a little bit about Corbin. Let's kind of. Sum up how we feel about Corbin Dallas. Yeah, because I mean, like we've we've breezed over the plot because let's say you've all fucking seen the Fifth Element. Like, yeah, and the plot is basically there's a big evil ball, and, and the, the sexy and chick stones, has to kill it. And the Fifth Element, which is love, is that I've always kind of gleamed that as being the the end yeah. of it. Like the Fifth so Element is love. I have a thing about this. The Fifth Element is is you know they they often say the Fifth Element is is love. I I put it to you. Mark Smith of Kino Inferno and Bot Culture fame, that yes. the fifth element is, in fact, good old-fashioned nookie. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's a, if you look a, at the position of the statue at the start of the movie that represents the being of the fifth element, it is like head back, mouth open. It's basically doing a big cum, yeah? Um, yeah, essentially. At the end, when Bruce Willis is like, I love you, baby, or whatever he says, she... You know, she kind of, she has a big orgasm that destroys an evil planet, is what happens. I think the fifth element is is a cheeky orgasm. I this mean, movie is literally saying, make love, not war. Yeah, I was about to say, that is the, the key message, isn't it? I've always kind of mm. got that from it. And it's, yeah, I think it is. It's a good old Roger in, because will also, save the world. Throughout the movie, they take great pains to have every character who meets Lulu be like... Oh, you know? Yeah, but they always go, she's perfect. Exactly. Perfect. So I've always interpreted it to be like, she exudes like a, a sexual aura, right? Like, it's not just that she's a, a fitty, which she obviously is, but it's, you know, it's like she has this, she awakens this, like, um, you know, sexiness in people. She just perfect. exudes pheromones, yeah. She's just, yeah, she's just the much. sexual being, yeah. So the fifth element is doing a cum. That's what we're going to say. Yeah, the fifth element is busting. Yeah. And it makes us feel good. (laughs) It makes us feel so good, we destroyed an evil planet. Um, That aside, Corbin Dallas. 
rank the uh, yeah I mean, he's, he's a 10 for me he's just uh, it's one of Bruce Willis's best performances he's really kind of he's both playing into into type and yeah. against type and he's doing yeah. both brilliantly and he slips in and out of both of those roles really really well and I think like just the the look is great the sort of bleach blonde hair is an interesting choice for Bruce Willis but he kind of pulls it off yeah um He's um, yeah, he's great. He's funny. He gets some really good lines. I'm a big fan of the line. Uh, Lady only speak two languages: English and bad English, 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 which was yeah. a uh, a uh, ad lib by Bruce Willis, apparently. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, I really like yeah. that. One. I also like yeah. how I said the phrase "bad English" there and slurred my words because apparently I also speak bad English. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on Corbin Dallas? No, I quite agree. I, I like uh, Bruce Willis in this movie. Uh, I like that he has the action hero moment in the middle of the movie, but then the climax, the dumb tish, of the movie is him like confessing his feelings to Lilu. I think that's a nice kind of um, twist on his kind of action hero persona. And I like—I I think he's really good in that scene as well. Where you know, um, I'm forgetting the exact dialogue because I'm very tired, but. Um, you know, where Ian Holmes kind of uh, encouraging him to to confess his feelings. Tell her. <laughs> yeah, it's a little corny, <laughs> but like, yeah. I think he pulls that scene off. You know, because he he feels very like vulnerable in that moment. You know, and I think that's what I like about his character in this movie is that like he is the classic Bruce Willis kind of one liner machine, but there is also a sense of like um, vulnerability. Like, I love the scene where um, I was going to talk about this when we moved on to Lily, but I might as well bring it up now. I love the scene where they're on the space plane to Flosstown Paradise. And he kind of says yeah. to her, like, look, I've got to come with you. You know, you're in big trouble. Uh, you know, you need someone to protect you kind of thing. And uh, she just goes, like, I'm the fifth element. I'm the supreme being. I protect you. Yeah. And I really like that scene. Both, both of them really act it nicely. But I like that look that he has there of, like, it's subtle, but you do see his kind of relationship to her change. And like, although he wants to keep her safe, he kind of comes to realize that like his role is, you know, a support role rather than a, you know, yeah, he, he knows he can let his barriers thing. down, which yeah. you know you get the idea that he's not done since his ex-wife. So yeah, it's it's, mm. it's a nice little moment that just feeds into his character a little bit more. And yeah. yeah, like you say, it's so brilliantly acted by the pair of them. And I also just want to flag up in that scene that those sleep chambers on like flights need to be a thing. I like, fully agree. As, as you know, like, I'm, I'm famously a nervy flyer and I definitely need that. <laughs> as friend of the show, a chamber and gas me. <laughs> as a friend of the show, Abdul Balabas can attest, I don't like flying. And I'm sure, I'm sure when we were on a Ryanair flight to Amsterdam many years ago, he would have loved to be able to just shove me in a cupboard and turn me off. <laughs> um, Fantastic. But yeah, so yeah, I'm going to give Corbin a 10 out of 10. Because uh, one other scene that I did want to flag up is, um, I mean, obviously he has lots of great lines in this, you know, where like the cops are like, uh, are you considered humanoid? And he gets negative, I'm a meat popsicle. You know, there's all these... It's iconic, yeah. Famous one-liners movie. that he throws out in this movie. But one scene that I've forgotten about that I thought was like a really well-acted on Bruce Willis's part is um, so after Lilu falls into his cab and they're you know driving around the city in this car chase and he fucks up the cab and everything, he gets a call from his boss. Kind yeah, of being yeah like, I know the scene. Where now. the fuck have you been? And uh, you know he kind of says, oh, this perfect fair came in. This kind of fair you can't resist. And immediately the boss kind of goes, oh, he's talking about a woman. As this really like interesting way they frame it, where he kind of like he's like leaning back on the bed, and the boss is like, you know, oh god, what's she like then, kind of thing. 
And he does play that kind of like lovesick teenager kind of thing where he's like dreamy eyed and on on the phone talking to about it's it's about Liam. got that energy, isn't it? Like you imagine in another movie that would be a woman laying on her front with her legs up in the air twirling the phone yeah. cord. It's that and, he plays it just but like it's that. somehow yeah. not like ridiculous when he does it. I think is what it, kind of Bruce Willis brings to this movie. Like he sells those moments and he sells the action hero moments and he kind of sells it as one package, you know. Corbin's one of the great action heroes, in my opinion. Like he, he's yeah. kind of got a bit of everything, and he's just is well acted. Is a really well realized character, and he kicks a lot of ass, which is ultimately what we want. Yeah, I also like the uh, you know the the love stuff, the romance, as some people might call it, is um, not overplayed. It's it becomes like a big part of the finale, and you know you can maybe say that's a little cheesy or whatever, but. He actually sells it quite well that he like falls in love with her over the course of the movie. Because sometimes that kind of stuff is like not super well handled. But I think Bruce Willis does enough like facial acting, and it's kind of you know it's kind of underplayed as you kind of see him you know looking wistfully at her or considering what she's said and kind of taking it on board and like slowly having this thing of like actually I'm in love with and like when he confesses his feelings at the end like. It feels like he's also confessing them to himself as well as to to Lena. Does try to kiss her when she's unconscious, though. Yeah, he does, and um, you know he is immediately shown uh, regretting that decision, um, and immediately gets a gun pointed in his face. Yes, he does. So, yeah, yeah, you know he very nearly pays for yeah. for that little dalliance. And you know, and then when you see him back in his apartment, he's like, "I shouldn't have kissed." You know, he's kind of talking to himself like, "I shouldn't have kissed her." And stuff. So like. I get the sense that, you know, well, we, we know that uh, Corbin's a, a lonely, lonely man because he talks to his cat as if she's his wife. That's very true, yeah. That that cat is... Yeah, I, I, I like the cat. I was, again, I like, I like his apartment. I like the bed that, um, like, is saran-wrapped every day. I like the fact that the shower is on top of the fridge and it's a unit that slides in and out of one another. I love all those little sort of details. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the design in this movie is obviously excellent. Um, we should do the other characters, though. Let's move on to Lilu, a.k.a. Lilu Dallas Multipass. <laughs> A 10 for that there. line alone. Well, that's that's probably the most famous quote from the movie. Yeah. Multipass, um, yeah. Yeah, I think Lilu's... Uh, well, one thing that I wanted to bring up um, is I've seen uh, the characterization of Lilu kind of be called into question in recent years. Um, she is okay. kind of a poster child for one of those tropes that has an annoying name, you know, like a uh, manic pixie dream girl style. But, uh, uh, but yeah. the trope that she's kind of associated with is this thing that they call uh, born sexy yesterday, i.e., a female character who's kind of childlike, and mm. you know, it's I guess the implication would be like relies on the male character to provide the intellectual side of things. Um, mm but is also like very sexualized and i can see why lulu would be considered a part of that trope to some extent she is very um yeah childlike and, and like pure like that's something they kind of emphasize right is like she's almost this like unspoiled divine character um i think watching it yesterday with that in mind i don't think it really plays like that though like i think the way uh Mila acts it and she was very involved in like how uh, Lilu like the language that like the fake ancient language that she speaks was partially developed by her 
so like there is you know there is that level of thought being put into it like yeah i think um to me i can certainly see why you would look that i mean this is the problem with these annoying tropes right it's like like the manic pixie dream girl is a great example of this where a lot of the examples people use are actually slight deviations away from the trope and actually lumping them all together kind of ends up being more problematic than just taking each thing on its own and i kind of think with this sci-fi specific or sci-fi fantasy specific trope like yeah it's certainly a thing that there are a lot of stories where the hero will come across a love interest who's kind of infantile and childlike but also sexy and like yeah that's definitely something that we should as a society assess but I, and yeah definitely be mindful of the kinds of people that are very um into that trope yes absolutely yes however i think the idea with lilu isn't that she's childlike i think it's that she's She's very kind of not, pure of heart, isn't she? Yeah, she's like not tainted by human society, if you like. It's less. Her, yeah, she's a divine being. Yeah. Like she's not a child. She's been around for a very, very long time, and she's not exactly born yesterday. She's recreated yesterday. Yeah, well, the tra- I think the trope is less literally that and more kind of. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, of know, course. This, this, um, and she's kind I'm of like s- naive, I suppose. But I think it's a combination between being kind of. Um, like the way the kind of trope that I associate Lila with more is this idea of like, and this is another kind of, I guess it's maybe an adjacent trope in sci-fi where it's like characters who are, as you say, thousands of years old, these kind of otherworldly beings, and therefore not concerned with human mores and kind of social norms. I mean, you think like, I mean, the big classic example that you're going to roll your eyes at when I say is, it's like the Doctor, right, from Doctor Who. Like, that's a classic piece of characterization of that character. Where it's like. This, this being that's as old as time itself who's also just kind of like a bit silly and a bit daft and a bit doesn't really understand how to socially integrate themselves and I kind of that's more what I would associate Lulu with where it's like I don't think she's like a an innocent naive dolt necessarily I think it's more just like no 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 not at you all. know she's not lived I mean. in very specific circumstances where she's been sheltered from the badness of the world I yeah suppose. i completely agree and i think that you know she's shown to be intelligent because of how she could just so easily absorb information mm. so you know she very quickly like learns english for example and she just adapts like obviously when you first see her in the movie when she first gets like um remade i guess um yeah she is kind of like feral and a little bit sort of childlike is probably not the best word but she yeah she's very excited and kind of overwhelmed by everything that she's seeing hmm. so i guess you could interpret the way that she's acting as being a little bit childlike but well, yeah this, i think it's they more specifically just... say she's been asleep for two thousand years yeah so this is all so new to her yeah. as well like when she first breaks out of the lab and she stood uh on like the city skyline seeing all the flying cars like she's just really like overwhelmed by it and yeah, I yeah. think that's like the way that she first acts when she meets Corbin is like, you know, he's the first person that she sees in this world that's actually nice to her and actually tries mm. to communicate with her in a non-aggressive way. But you even see that she's intelligent in that scene because like she can't speak English, but she's able to determine like the word help from one of those like help mm. the children kind of posters because she's able to process like, oh, the image on this is like how I feel inside. So if I say this, mm-hmm. there's a chance he might understand like I need him to help me. 
Well, it's even slightly earlier to that, that when she actually escapes from the pod thing that she's trapped in, she discerns that the uh, military guy is waving the ID card in front of her, which is the, the lock. Uh, well, the key for the lock, should I say? She discerns that that's what that is and uses that to escape. So yeah, she's yeah. able. Yeah, she's not like an idiot or anything. She's but she actually, actually processes clever. information very quickly, because like yeah. when she's scrolling through the internet, it's like pages flashing yeah. up, you know, really rapidly. I, um, I do have one question about Lilo. So she learns stuff very, very quickly. Does she learn how to fight from that bit where she's looking at the martial arts pages, or does yes. she just know how to do that? I think yes is the implication. Because <laughs> I always wondered, I was like, did, is she actually so? Because like she's the fifth element, is she actually some kind of like divine warrior, or did she just read a book about Bruce Lee and all of a sudden she could just kick the shit out of space? Orcs? The way I've always seen that is like because she's supposed to be this, as you say, this kind of like divine warrior. She has the capacity to be stronger, faster, whatever already. Yeah, she can, and she's yeah, just she like can... processing the technique from. From yeah, the, like she's she just can gonna apply oh. it very easily. Like, yeah. yeah, she like learns kung fu from watching Bruce Lee. But, like she had the capacity. Like well, we see in her first scene, like she punches through the tube. And, yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, she punches yeah. through unbreakable glass. So yeah, yeah that's a fair, so fair, fair, fair point. We know she's like, um, str- and like when she fights later on, it's like, and this is I actually really like this action scene where she's fighting the um, the space hawks. I like that she seems to be just kind of like toying with them a little bit. Yeah. Um. Oh, like she's like having fun is the thing, yeah. and that's why that's why I kind of think Lilu is like to me exempt from this trope of born sexy Esther because I think although she has this like oh she's overwhelmed by everything like she's taking information in she is kind of like she has those childlike moments like like with the Lilu Dallas multipass where she just keeps saying the phrase over and over again. <laughs> this um, is so good. But again, I think it's more like what separates it for me is like she clearly has this like love for like life and being around people and learning things and like like when she's just eating the chicken and stuff like everything to her is like this incredible like joy this incredible sensation um and that's you know i think that is what makes a cynic like corbin kind of fall in love with her it's like she's so in love with everything you know yeah, and I think as well, like the the multipass thing is such a great little character bit because the what, the reason why she keeps saying it is because she recognizes it as being this object of freedom in this world where mm. like she's very much been sort of hunted down from the moments that she was first brought into it. So I think that's why whenever she's just saying it, she's like, "No, I can be here. This is me. Yeah, I'm allowed yeah. to be here." Like, uh, <laughs> but yeah, multipass is the best quote of the movie. Uh, Lilu, out of ten, what are we thinking? That's got to be 10 out of 10. It's got to be a 10, isn't it? Mila kind of carries this movie. I mean, oh, everyone yeah, in this maybe... movie, there's a lot of great actors in this movie, but I think that just speaks to how good she is in this part, that like she is still the most memorable part of the movie, arguably. And even, part... even with Chris Tucker. <laughs> yeah. I think from what I read, this was specifically written for her. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she bosses it. I'm like... I know that she's very comfortable in her position of just making shit films with her husband, but um, I kind of hope she one day goes back to doing something a bit more uh, interesting. I mean, my other favourite performance of hers, even though she doesn't get much to do in the movie, I've always loved her as Katinka in Zoolander. I always think she's really great yeah, in she's that funny, movie. Yeah. She's <laughs> For like the seven lines of dialogue she has in that movie. <laughs> So that's Lilo. Shall we move on to Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg? The one <laughs> what and only. Name. 
The one what a name. and and when he says that name as he's introducing himself, you get a punch in from the camera on every <laughs> section of the name. Such a fucking great little flourish. Um, the, I can't decide if that was intentional or that was in the edit. <laughs> this is something we didn't touch on because the editing in this movie is very. Um, one thing I like about this movie is that the editing is very fast paced. Um, mm-hmm. It's what people would have referred to as like MTV editing at the time, very like music video. Yeah. Very but, stylized, um, yeah. Yeah. But it's. Because this movie's like 97, right? So it's kind of coasting that yeah, yeah, stylistic yeah. wave. Um, but it's not frenetic. Like, you always no. know where things are and what's going on. Like, there's that scene um, when the plane... Like, there's this kind of montage of, like, all the people trying to get onto the plane to Flossed in Paradise and, like, what they're doing when they're on the plane. Like, uh, Ruby Rod's just eating some puss, as one does. <laughs> yeah, um, like, this is a PG. <laughs> and, um, well, that's where we get the quote, uh, I don't want one position, I want all positions. Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and we see like in this cutting between like what Corbett and Leela were doing, what the guys who were doing on the ground who were preparing the plane, and it's like cutting to the other attempts, like the fake Corbin Dallas's to get on the plane, and it doesn't feel like a jumbled mess. It's like cutting, like it cut, like it is like a music video in the sense of like cuts to yeah. a rhythm, whereas you get a lot of movies these days where they just cut around all over the place, and it's like makes your head hurt. I think um, that also really plays in with the cinematography, which is something that probably doesn't get flagged up as much. Because obviously, you, know, you think about like the visual aspect of the movie in terms of, like the design, the colors, and the sets, mm. and all that kind of stuff. But like the cinematography in this movie is my kind of preference in the sense that it's all very wide. Everything is in focus. They don't yes. do a whole lot of like shallow depth of field and stuff like that. Like it's all everything is always like crisp and clear. So I think when you are getting that fast paced editing, it doesn't feel like what we get now. Or yeah. what we might actually get discussing the next movie, um, mm. where there's a, a yeah, you say it's kind of frenetic and it, it, it there's so much for your eye to take in, but it doesn't jump around too much to the point where you can't take everything in. But it's there's enough, yeah. yeah I know, you know what I'm trying to say. No, I agree. Um, I agree. Um, we were going to talk about uh, Zorg, though. <laughs> yes, we were. <laughs> this is the problem we're talking about a movie like this. It's just it's, everything about it is so good. So Gary Oldman in this movie, obviously he's also in the director's other film, uh, Leon, colon, The Professional, also playing uh, an absolute maniac in that as well. But let's just discuss some of the acting choices made by Mr. <laughs> Mr. Oldman in this movie. Because he is playing this arch-capitalist slash general lunatic. Because they kind of say he's like a weapons dealer, but it also seems like he's just a, a capitalist businessman in general. Like he owns the taxi firm that... Um, Corbin works for. Um, he seems kind to just have a bit of everything, doesn't he? Like he's just got his fingers in all the pies. And he seems to basically live for chaos. Because in that scene where he talks to Ian Holm, he's like, "Ah, oh, chaos is good, though. Look, when I break this glass, all these little robots come out to to sweep it away and all the rest of it." And he's like, "That's all I'm doing on a global scale is creating chaos to give people purpose in life." And I mean, that philosophy is its what a 15-year-old would write for a villain, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but he's got this crazy performance. Like, he's doing this crazy, like, kind of Texan accent. And that's always like, what is the thing? Is that, are they trying to do, like, a parody of, like, the Texas oil tycoon or, or what? Because like, he's also dressed like I don't know what. <laughs> got this like this bizarre like multi-colored kind of it's like green and or kind of like like teal and gold kind of like 
all in one thing with this like raised collar. Honestly, it's, it's it's beautiful. It's fucking beautiful that design. He's, um, he's also walking around with a, a limp for for no stated reason. He's, he just has a limp. Um, well, one thing I read whilst doing a bit of research for this movie is what Gary Oldman says his um sort of, what was like the sort of genesis of that character for him was he said he played it as a cross between uh, Ross Perot and Bugs Bunny. Yes. Which, <laughs> Because he even has like the, he has like a bunny rabbit style like overbite. He does, yeah. He Which he doesn't does. normally I mean, have, right? Like he's yeah. He he gets a lot of my favorite moments in the movie. Like one is where like he, he opens the case at the end, thinking the stones are in it, and he just gets that little breakdown bit of being like they're not here. Which is just <laughs> his delivery of that is amazing. Uh, but the the one that always stands out to me is where he's demoing the weapon uh, to yes. the space orcs. Uh, this is what it was like flamethrower. My, my favorite, yeah. It, like he almost goes out of Bugs Bunny and goes into Forrest Gump at certain points in his performance, and it's just wild. I think it might be my favorite Gary Oldman performance. It's certainly it's it's a memorable one. If nothing else, <laughs> I, I think mean, it's my, my like, personal yeah, favorite Zorg line is when Ian Holm goes, "You're a monster, Zorg," and he goes, "I know." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, then he echoes that line later on, where they're like, "Sir, there's a bomb on this plane." And he shoots the guards and just goes, "I know." <laughs> 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 Yeah. He's just so great. He's so great. I, I even love to see where he starts to choke to death on the cherry, and you know, yeah. Ian Holm has to save his life. It's just every scene he's in is just fantastic, and I love him so much. Yeah, and there is no subtlety to, to this character whatsoever, and Oldman clearly no. knows that, and is just playing it to the back row. Honestly, I feel like if you didn't have Ruby Rod in this movie, Gary Oldman's performance would almost feel too wild for everything else that happens in this incredibly wild movie anyway. I think Ruby Rod somehow anchors Gary Oldman's performance. Yeah. I mean, I would say, like, there's there's, there's not a lot of meat on the bone with Zorg, but, like, I'm going to have... He's just evil. I can't go lower than a nine just for the sheer costuming, the performance... Gary yeah, can I, say what he wants in retrospect, but he's clearly having fun doing this this role. The only downside there is to Zorg for me is I kind of want to know a little bit more about his relationship with the evil, which they refer to as Mr. Shadow. Like, yes, because you get that, that one scene where the evil ball calls him on the phone. Yeah. Like having um, a brain hemorrhage or whatever. Yeah, and I'm, I just I kind of want to know more about about that like does does mr shadow because we'll, we'll call him mr shadow i guess does is he does he connect with zorg because zorg is like the most evil person on earth is that yeah is I, that i've just it seen is? it as like he's just a means to an end like he's just however shadow gathers information he's just aware that like oh zorg's like this wealthy powerful guy with no morals you know Potentially, I mean, yeah, Zorg is, uh, yeah, he's a nine or a ten for me. Like, mm. I, I, I might, because I can't give every character in this movie a ten. I might have to give him a nine, yeah. just because I want to know more him, about him and Mister. Going to give him a nine. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd like to know more about their dynamic. That's my only. Let's criticism. move on to. Um, I mean, we're just saying we're, we're we're just playing keep away with Ruby Rod, but we'll move on to <laughs> Ian Holmes' father, whatever. Right? What's that um, character called? Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius. Cornelius. V- Vito Cornelius, is that his name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We'll just call him Cornelius yeah. for now. Um, I, I, I really like Ian Holm as an actor. I think he's, fun in, he's fun in this movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, the character is, like, he's very much just old, slightly bumbling priest who's yeah, he uh, Ill-equ- ill-equipped for his mission, I think, is kind of the Yeah, he character. doesn't get a lot to do, but... Yeah. 
he's always fun and i think i really like the scene where he's getting drunk at the bar yes um and he's uh, she's just so well. human you know and then yeah. lots of it's like do you, know, you know what you know what that's like he looks up at the robot who just <laughs> shakes his head at him. yeah so and i stupid. like all the business of like whenever lilu whips off her kit because she's got no compunctions about being nude his various faces of embarrassment <laughs> Yeah, no, um, Cornelius is a lot of fun, and Ian, again, Ian Holmes is one of those actors that is just always a joy to watch. I think, again, he doesn't have enough going on to sort of push him towards, say, like, the ranks of, like, Corbin and Lilo. He's, like, a solid seven, I'd say. Yeah, I'm, I'd guess if I was giving him an eight, because I think he's got some great... He bounces off the other characters as well, like, he's got the yeah. great scene with, with Zorg where they discuss their competing yeah. philosophies. Um, I love the bit where he tries to rob uh, Corbin of the ticket to <laughs> Boston Paradise. Just inept robbery. Um, I like that he somehow like, convinces Lilu to go along with him. Well, I think Lilu's just kind of vibing at all times. Right? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that is kind of how I would just go. Considering she has to save the world from Mr. Shadow, she's just kind of vibing for most of the film. She's a being of pure love energy. She's not really, you know... But that's, that's what I think is kind of funny about this. Uh, I mean, we'll kind of roll Ian Holm and the younger priest together into one, I think. But, um, I, I like the fact that they're both clearly not particularly prepared for this mission that their not order has been preparing for for 2,000 years. Because <laughs> the young novice guy, I love it when he's like, he fucks up because they try and obviously try and put him on the plane with Lily pretending to be Corbin. But then Corbin just shows up and he's like, oh, this guy just, uh, you know, I sent him to get my uh, ticket because I didn't think I'd get her on time. All right, bye! And just shoves him off. <laughs> and like, that's There's the fact no. that he then says, like, he's like, oh, I thought Mr. Corbin was going to kill me. It's like, no, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, he just offers no resistance. <laughs> I love it. And then when uh, Cornelius is like, well, we'll have to go to Egypt, he's just like, I don't want to go to Egypt. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I'm giving them collectively an eight. I love the idea of like, yeah. I love the idea of Cornelius as like um, he's like a shit Obi Wan. Like, <laughs> Even looks one, like Obi Wan. <laughs> yeah, he's the one who like like Obi Wan's just waiting there for shit to kick off, and when it does, he knows exactly what to do. But like, I like the idea of a shit Obi Wan. He's like, I, I, well, I sort of know in theory what to do, but I'm not really, you know, I've been in a monastery my whole life. I don't know what I'm doing. Like. Well, that's his recurrent gag, isn't it? Is whenever they ask him anything about like what they have to do, it says in theory. Like in yeah, theory, yeah. he knows how to do this. Um, yeah. yeah, no, they're great. Uh, they're a lot of fun. Um, who else do we really have to talk about? I mean, one name. Other than the out. one that we definitely want to talk about. Um, I mean, because there's like you know, there's a bunch of other little side characters. Like I so say, you have Tyler Lister as the president, who is. I, I just kind of like the visual of him as the president. I think it's just, it's fun. Um, uh, who else have we got? I, I love the, the deaf uh, actor guy. Gets more scenes than probably that character needs. But... I love that they set up that he's deaf only so they can pay it off with the gag later on where he's like, throw me the gun. Yeah, the gun, the gun, the gun. <laughs> he just passes him the, um, the billiard ball. That's the uh, only the reason they mention he's deaf. Although I like that it implies in the society that, you know, people with disabilities are just kind of just there. And can you know, become world women. famous actors. Yeah. You know. Although I do like Ruby's line as he's introducing him. <laughs> He'll get nothing out of this performance because he is stone deaf. <laughs> yeah, why is he at the opera? <laughs> and then he cuts over with the fan girl and he's like, hmm? <laughs> we need to talk about the diva. Yes, because um, very important character. 
Yeah, a small but pivotal role, the uh, Blue Diva, who gives the film's, like, one of the film's most iconic scenes where she does the weird kind of opera. It's kind of like a Bjork song, because these, like, hip-hop drums Yeah, kind of it starts off as a standard yeah. opera and then becomes, like, an electro track, yeah. Yeah, it's um, very, uh, very 1997, and you do think, yes, Bjork's uh, sort of debut album would come out a year before, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I like her little dance moves. Yeah, <laughs> they, she's they always nice. stand out to me. And it's, it's intercut with Lilu's martial arts extravaganza. Yeah. She's being of the space orcs. Um, and she, yeah, she performs that beautiful song and then gets shot. It's also um, just a classic example of like a scene that wouldn't be in a film like this today, or a film directed no. by a sane person. Because like I mean, the movie just just kind of like okay, there is the fight scene happening alongside this. But also, the movie just kind of lingers on this operatic performance. And you just see, like, uh, Ruby and uh, Corbin and various other characters just watching the performance. And, like, it just cuts between them looking, like, genuinely moved. And that's just it. Like, that's just, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's just like, yeah, these guys are just watching an opera and they're enjoying I, it. I mean, the closest I'd say I've seen to it in any film for a long time is in Valerian, because you have the scene where mm. Rihanna's character is introduced and you yes, watch her right. entire routine whilst Dane DeHaan just sits there and watches it. Um, yeah, but that, that's more played for comedy, whereas this is just kind of like true. a scene that happens. And then, yeah, she gets shot and she has the stones inside her. She has the great. How one. did they get there? Don't worry about it. Um, there is a, I don't know who the artist is, but there is a, a very famous webcomic of uh, her just forcing the stone <laughs> down her throat, like really struggling. And then she's yeah. just there, like exhausted. She's like, well, that's one down. <laughs> Well, I assume she has some kind of alien physiology. My theory has always been, like, she can go a little bit, like, intangible and just kind of subsume them into her being. And in a situation where she hadn't hadn't just been capped, then they might have been able to extract from them similarly. Again, this movie is also, you know, a child-friendly movie and has a scene where Bruce Willis reaches inside a dead alien's stomach to pull stones out. Like, that's just a thing that happens in this movie. And they're covered in goop as well. Yeah, covered in goop. Um, Which does raise some questions because one because the water one is supposed to be set off by fluid, but let's not worry about that. Yeah, so yeah. Hmm. Maybe oh, I guess it has, to get, it has to get important. To, I guess it has like, to get to the temple before you can like the temple will activate it. I, I think we're overthinking it. <laughs> yeah, we're putting more thing thought into it than anyone else did. Um, anyway, look, let's stop beating around the bush. Oh no, shit! There's one more character we need to talk about before we get to Ruby, and it's a pivotal role, a small but pivotal role. Lee Evans as himself, presumably. His character does have a name, actually. And I, no, I remember no, looking at no, no. Lee up. Evans plays himself. No, no, his character does have a name. It's a really weird name for that character, and I'm going to find it. Um, but no, please talk about Lee Evans and why he is in this movie. <laughs> I don't know why he's in this movie. That's all I can say about that. I guess he That's was it. in movies at this Fog. time. What's his name? His name is Fog. Fog. Because he Fog. kind of he, don't know why he's introduced like a few, uh, like a scene or so before the action scene, but then he's kind of just there to be like the crew member who's swept up in the action. He doesn't really do he much. Just happens to be played by Lee Evans. Yeah, it's just very like egregious to UK viewers, I guess, because we're like, well, that is famed stand-up comedian <laughs> Lee Evans. Um, I guess for people who aren't familiar with Lee Evans, because we do have American listeners, I mean, if you've seen. There's something about Mary you've seen, Lee Evans. Yeah, or um, Mousetrap. Or, Mousetrap, or was indeed. Mouse, so, was it so I guess he was doing Mousetrap. Mousetrap. No, Mousetrap. Mousetrap, yeah. Mousetrap, Mousetrap. Mousetrap. Um, yeah, Mousetrap. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, he's in that. Yeah. Um, I guess he was in movies at this time. But, um, yeah. I guess he was trying to break Hollywood at this time. But for, for the benefit of our American listeners who may not be aware, or indeed any other nationality, there was a time when Lee Evans was like the biggest stand up in this country. Like, like huge. Huge. Like arena tours, massive. Like you could go to any house in this country and they would have at least one Lee Evans DVD. Yeah, yeah quite. Um, he was he was massive, even bigger than like Peter K or someone like that. Yeah, like, Peter K was was big for a time. Like Michael McIntyre was big for a time, but Lee Evans was like sold out arena tours. You know, it was like big, big, big. I guess like the equivalent you would have in America today is like Kevin Hart. Maybe like I guess he kind of yeah maybe. Um, it was it was funny as well because Lee Evans retired very early. Yeah, because he separate. made all the money as possible to True, make. but like, yeah, he just, he bowed out surprisingly early in his career, I think. I mean, it was around for a, a fair while, don't get me wrong. I've got respect but... for that. I don't need Lee Evans' yeah. bit on transphobia. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I mean, Lee Evans would never be that controversial, right? But... No, he always strikes me as a thoroughly nice bloke, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but why is he in this movie? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Christ only knows, because he's got about five lines, and every time I see this movie, I forget he's in it. And every yeah, time he same. pops up, I'm like, that is Lee Evans. Why is he in this? <laughs> like, he's good. Do we think he's the director fun. was a fan? <laughs> he's fun. And like, I, I don't think he's ever been bad in a movie that I've seen him in. No. Um, um, he's, he's hilarious in The Something About Mary, a movie no. which is probably problematic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, one film that he is in, this is just a very quick aside, uh, which just throws back to we were discussing Kathy Burke earlier. He's in a movie mm. with Kathy Burke called The Martins, where they play a married couple. Yeah, that's very right. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a sort of slightly obscure little British movie now. But yeah, he that's, was also he's in really this good at that. obscure British uh, TV show called Doctor Who on a special was episode. He in- yeah, he's in one of the David Tennant special episodes, Planet of the Dead. Oh. Oh, the one with the fucking stingray things on the bus. Yeah, boy. I I remember that had the woman from the Bionic from, Woman remake. It does, yes. It has yeah, that's what it. I remember from that. But it also has Lee Evans. Uh, he's like on the ground phoning the doctor and being like, how can I help you, doctor? Yeah. <laughs> Not one of the best episodes. So I'll, I'll be real with you. No, no. I remember that one being quite poo. Quite um, shit, actually. But... Fog gets a, gets an honourable eight just because you know Lee Evans is a delight. Admittedly. I think it gets ten out of ten. Lee Evans all the way. Um, <laughs> I've never knew you were such a big Lee Evans fan. <laughs> I'm not. I do know. I do know what. I, I don't think I have anything against him though. Like if you talk to if you talk to me about like Michael McIntyre, I hate that guy. Yeah, no, no. Because this is the thing. Like I feel like I could watch a Lee Evans stand up set and still find it funny. Yeah, it's like yeah. comedy for the whole. F- I mean, he swears a bit, but it's like comedy for the whole. Family. He does. He's such a sweaty man as well. Yeah, that was the other thing that was always about Lee Evans, right? He was always drenched in sweat within five minutes of his performance. Yeah. <laughs> like, how does such a sweaty man get so famous? I'll never understand it. Anyway, look, we are massively overrunning on the fifth element section. <laughs> as I think we right. sort of knew yeah. we would in our hearts. Let's that's, get that's to true. the meat of the issue. Let's get to the real star of the show. Let's dig down into the core of this movie and talk about the one and only... Sir Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. He's not a knight of the realm, but I think we could launch a campaign to get him an OBE. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's amazing to think that before Chris Tucker was cast, um, they were genuinely pursuing the likes of Prince and Prince, Michael Jackson. Yeah. And... Well, Prince makes a certain amount of sense with the well, with the, the character is just Prince, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 
Like the costume, I don't think Prince was that kind of like extroverted, but like he has that. Um, no, but, but he has stylistically, that like uh, yeah, yeah the, like the, the especially the one outfit he's wearing where it's like the black, um, like the black velvet yeah, cat that's suit with, very the, with the roses around the collar. Like yeah. that basically is a Prince outfit. Yeah, and apparently they did pursue Prince to play the role, which makes sense. Um, but I don't think anybody other than Chris Tucker can play this character. No, Chris it's Tucker just... absolutely nails this. It's he. It's amazing because this is a movie so full of energy, and he somehow has more energy than everything else in this movie combined. Like yeah, he yeah. doesn't just arrive in this movie; he fucking blows the doors off this movie. <laughs> he just and devours the and, scenery. Yeah, yeah, and the film is not the same afterwards either. Like it's just completely off the rails as soon as he comes into the film. And yeah, I just as think we he's said, amazing. he has all the best. He has all the best lines. He delivers he them at the speed of light. Um, <laughs> Joel, the only thing the only thing I can compare it to, right, and this is like maybe a, an analogy that'll be lost on the American listeners, unless they're of a certain age. But um do you know the episode of Blackadder, the first one that introduces Lord Flashheart? It's that, right? Like yeah. where it's just like and like whenever I see um Ruby Rod, I'm always reminded of Rick Mail. God rest his soul's philosophy on being in Blackadder, which was, I only want to do this if I can win the scenes I'm in. And <laughs> I feel like that mentality is the same one that Chris Tucker brought to this movie, because he certainly wins every scene he's in. Oh, he does. He, just he really does. comes in and just annihilates the place. I mean, what can be said about Ruby Rod, really? He's a, he's a radio host from the future. Because um, apparently I guess, in the future radio is still big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess he's a podcaster, maybe. Because that show can't be going out live, surely. It goes out <laughs> live. It goes out live because at the end he says that's the best show we ever did. Uh, and yeah, they're listening true, to it live. Yeah, they're listening to true. it live. The president is the president listens to Ruby Rose. That's true. That's true. And he does he cuts to commercial at one point as well. I forgot about that. He does. Uh, one mm. little detail that I love is it this happens twice in the movie where um is whenever Corbin is uh, dealing with staff members, female staff members at either the hotel or on the flight, they're completely professional, but then as soon as they mention Ruby Rod, they just go, oh my god, he's just so sexy. And they just yeah. like break down talking about him, and then they just immediately go back to being professional again. <laughs> I like that Ruby Rod is shown to be a red-blooded heterosexual. Which... Despite outward appearances, yeah. Cause, um, and again, another of his more underrated lines, I think, is when he is you know, chowing down on the air hostess. Um, he keeps he coming is. up for air and having a conversation <laughs> with her. And it's just the way he says it, which is like, like, I've never felt this way before. It's like, oh, do you mean it? Yeah! <laughs> so he <laughs> yeah, screams yeah. that in her face. Just always fucking kills me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, every, every line out of his mouth is gold, right? Green, super green. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are we are we rocking under the assumption here as well that Ruby Rod is actually a divine being as well because of the influence that he has on everybody around him? I think he might actually be the other fifth element. I think he could <laughs> save the world. He just has the sheer force of personality. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Shadow just sees him and is like, nah. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> what I also like about Ruby Rod, a, a detail about his character that I enjoy, is despite his uh, ridiculousness and flamboyance, like, he clearly has like a set of standards of quality for his radio show because he's deeply vexed by the fact that Corbin is not engaging. <laughs> like when his sycophants are all around him, oh, it was the best, it was the best show. He's like, it was not good, it was bad. You know, he's like, I like that he has standards. 
Like, he even, like, calls Corbin out on his shit as well. I mean, he gets fucking put up against the wall for his troubles. But yeah, he actually, like, he just confronts Corbin about it, which you would not expect him to do. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, he's, he's such a great character. I love Ruby Rod so much. Yeah, and I, I kind of love that he's introduced as, like, a comic relief, but then he's in the rest of the movie. <laughs> like, he goes with them to the temple. It always cracks me up every time. It's just like, how has this guy... I mean, it's... I mean, as a D&D player, Ruby Rod really strikes me as, like, the NPC that the players liked. And so they <laughs> semi-abducted them. I mean, it's just pure happenstance, isn't it? It's like, he happens to be sat in the front row with Corbin at the yeah. opera when they get attacked. So he's just kind of stuck there. I love as well that on his radio show, he's like, if anybody's listening, please come and get me. I'm in the front <laughs> yeah. row. <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of hilarious because oh. it's like it, that whole sequence is like a Die Hard meets Rush Hour sequence because he's kind of doing his like Rush Hour shtick, right? He's like, "You crazy man!" You know, <laughs> it's the screaming. I can't. Yeah. I just it fucking cracks me every, up every, every time. No, I'm just, every time a new scream starts, it gets funny. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a good bit. The you know the bit of Bruce Willis trying to like. Be John McClane, be surrounded by these like weird preening future stars, right? especially Ruby. <laughs> so good. Well, so good. I think uh, my rating for Ruby Rod is five billion out of ten. Yeah, it has to be, doesn't it? You just it can't be. Anything. I mean, you... it has. To, well, it has to be. What it has to be is super green, right? It's super green. Super yeah, green super out green. of ten. So I feel like we've talked enough about the fifth element, even though we could clearly go for another hour or two talking about like how much we mm. love this movie. Um, so, what are we saying is the fifth element? Is it green or is it super green? <laughs> Do you mean is it Kino or is it Inferno? Is it green or is it super green? There's there's no it's Inferno here, baby. <laughs> it's super green. It's obviously Kino. Um, I've enjoyed this movie since I was a wee boy. I'll probably continue to enjoy it for the rest of my days. Um, it, it's definitely like, this is me being honest, this is top 10 material for me. Agreed. It's definitely, top, it's definitely top 15. It's almost certainly top 10. And in terms of movies that I just enjoy kind of putting on and sitting back and watching, this is one of them. It's the classic example of a movie that if I'm flicking through TV, not that I do that that much these days, but if I'm flicking through TV channels and The Fifth Element is playing... I will watch it from the moment that I tuned in to the end of the movie. 100%. Yeah, every single time about Phil. Like, when I watched it for this episode, that is the second or maybe third time I've watched it this year. Uh, yeah, I watched I mean, it a, a good couple of live. months ago with my neighbours. <laughs> that's a hot way to live. Because my, my neighbour revealed that it's his favourite movie. And so when we hung out, we watched The Fifth Element. It was great. Yeah, I mean... It's a strong and powerful way to live, my friend. It, it truly is. Um, so, going from a really bright and sunny depiction of the future, let's look at a really dark and murky, horrible one. Yes. Let's look at Australian goth king uh, Alex Proyas's movie from the 90s. I can't remember what year. <laughs> 90... 98, right? 98, right? 98, yeah, so. I believe, yeah, Dark City. Um, yeah, I should probably check right now on air. I've been saying 97 for the fifth element this entire time. It is 97 is for the, the fifth element. Okay, good. Yeah. So these came out within a year of each other, but... They did, yeah, and they are... Obviously, we'll get into it when we discuss it, but yeah, they are kind of like two sides of the same coin in a way. Um, mm. 
But anyway, let's hear a clip from Dark City. So it seems you've discovered your unpleasant nature. Who are you? We might ask the same question. Yes. Sleep. Now. So Dark City is a 1998 sci-fi neo-noir mashup starring Rufus Sewell as John Murdoch, a man who awakens one night to find that he's probably a serial killer, but doesn't really have any recollection of being one, which is a crazy <laughs> way to start a movie, but there we go. Um, as John begins to uh, explore his uh, nocturnal 1930s question mark universe, uh, he begins to find more and more discrepancies within, and also that his psychic powers seem to be awakening. Along the way, he encounters a, a disbelieving detective, played by William Hurt, uh, his equally disbelieving wife, <laughs> and a race of Nosferatu's in Nazi attire who pursue him <laughs> relentlessly throughout the nighttime hellscape. As the movie goes along... John comes to realise that he is in fact living in a massive experiment held by these Nosferatu-looking motherfuckers, also known as the Strangers, who are attempting to unearth the secret of the human soul for reasons that are unclear. That's about the uh, the size of it. John's psychic powers get more and more powerful, and at the end he has a bigger Kira fight with the Nosferatus and... Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is another movie that's kind of hard to surmise in a pithy way because it is much more reliant on vibe than it is on plot. Like, the first act of this movie is pretty much Rufus Sewell running around looking uh, beleaguered (laughs) and um, kind of encountering various characters who are like, what the hell's your problem, John? Uh, For instance, his wife played by uh, Jennifer Connelly. Um, And, you know, you kind of get, like... uh, the movie doesn't really develop in strictly plot-like terms, I would say. It kind of, you know, there's just revelations about the nature of what's going on as it goes along. And you do get a big climactic battle at the end, but um, would you say that's fair? There's kind of not really a super um, A to B plot to this movie. <laughs> at least that's kind of what I was thinking when I was watching it last night. Um, Sort of, yeah. Like, it starts off with this sort of central intrigue where we're like, oh, is is he a killer? Is he not? And then, like, you know, you immediately are then introduced to the Strangers, which is their names. Uh, These Nosferatu-looking motherfuckers. Uh, yeah, you're well, that's the name the that uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character gives them. We don't know what their actual name is. No, that's very true, actually. Yeah, we don't know what their names are. Um, but I think the strangers works quite well, um, and we're yeah we're introduced to them who they clearly have powers of their own because they're shown to be able to fucking fly and shit like that. Well, they fly and they they wave their hands in front of people and go sleep. Yes, <laughs> I've always liked that. I've always quite liked that. Um, yeah, so as soon as like the movie sort of kicks off with this like is he a murderer? Is he not? We're then introduced to these like supernatural entities or what will they find out like extraterrestrial entities. Um, And then the movie then just becomes a case of, right, he now has to stop these these people or these things uh, from doing what they're doing. And then uh, he does. It's kind of it. Yeah. And that is kind of the the long and short of it. I mean, a lot of it is him. Yeah. Trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Um, 
and, you know, there are some iconic scenes there in like uh, obviously because one one of the things that we find out early on is that like John is one of the only people who doesn't fall asleep at the behest of the strangers. Everyone else goes to sleep whenever the strangers put them all to sleep, but John just doesn't because he's just built differently. Um, and as he's kind of like looking around the city, uh, one of the most famous scenes in this movie, obviously, is when the uh, all the buildings kind of retract and move around, and it's very um, it's very reminiscent. We were saying this last night. It's very reminiscent of uh, Inception in a way, and um, obviously that kind of had the city street like folding in on itself, but it's that same thing of um, you know taking like a very urban environment and like treating it almost as malleable. Yeah, and I know that Christopher Nolan was has shouted this movie out as an influence on him. Um, and you can kind of see that, I think, in a lot of ways. 100%, um, yeah. Definitely, he likes this movie. Yeah. But I think before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what plot there is, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the general aesthetic of this movie. Um, as I kind of said in my intro, it's set in the 1930s question mark era. Um, yeah. Obviously, we find out it's presumably in the far-flung future, actually. Yeah. But... Um, and at one point, uh, Mr. Hand, who's like the key stranger character that we follow, uh, the key antagonist, I suppose, uh, played by Richard O'Brien, the great Richard O'Brien. The, the amazing Richard O'Brien, um, yes. Uh, he kind of says, like, oh, we took, we made, he actually says, like, we had, we made a mishmash of different eras. Um, which I think is like one of the things that obviously Alex Proyas is known for. Like, if people aren't aware of him, he directed uh, The Crow, for example. Um, He's also directed some less good movies, such as, uh, well, I kind of like iRobot, but it's not great. Oh, was that him? Um, I didn't know that. I just know him. Yeah. I just, literally, all I know of him is that he did The Crow and this movie. I, as far as I thought, he just dropped off the earth after this one. <laughs> no, uh, he did this. He did Knowing, that Nicolas Cage movie. Oh, did he? Oh. Um, oh. And that's a, you know, that's a bad movie, but it has some visual touches that are quite nice. Um, he also did a movie that is definitely going to be covered on this podcast at some point gods of egypt i'm I'm literally looking at his filmography now he did garage days as well which i've heard yes of. i've never seen that yeah i've, I've heard that. of it though but... but certainly at this time proyas was kind of known for his uh well he was known for the crowd yeah, you know, yeah. very, uh, <laughs> which is a movie that has another uh kind of almost neo-noirish kind of very gothic uh, atmosphere uh, you know, it kind of has that like German expressionist feel to it um, that this movie has. Um, yeah, so I guess what I want to kind of uh, discuss before we get into the plot is like, what's your general vibe on this movie? I, I like this film a lot, you know. I, this was the first time I'd seen it since our uni days. That was the last time I saw it, so it was a fair mm. while ago. Yeah, so, same actually, same. But there was a lot of images from the film that were really stuck in my head, like a lot of the images involving the strangers, particularly Richard O'Brien's character. I remembered a lot of him, you know, sleep. Yeah. I remembered that quite a lot. And um, a lot of the sort of psychic mind battle shit that happens towards the end. I remembered that quite uh, quite vividly. Um, but yeah. no, I like this movie. It's not one, like, say, comparing it to The Fulfillment, it's not one of those movies that I would watch again and again, but I really like it. Visually, I really like it as well. I think you were saying how, like, Christopher Nolan clearly takes a lot of influence in this movie. I think this is a deeply influential movie in so many different areas. Yeah. I think that this Considering, is... Considering, like, this is the one that really fits the, like, underrated brief, because at the time... 
It was critically well received, but audiences just didn't go for it. No, and it was a, a flop as well. It was. Uh, it says here that the mm. budget was twenty seven million. Its box office was twenty seven point two million. So yeah, it was yeah, a flop, yeah. which is a shame because it's a great movie. And uh, you know, this is something that um, will is worth mentioning because it always gets brought up whenever people talk about this movie. There are two different versions that exist. There is the director's cut and the theatrical cut. There's not a whole lot really that's different between them aside from the fact that the theatrical cut starts with a narration that essentially explains the story because yes, they seem to think the audiences of the time wouldn't grasp the story. I watched the theatrical cut for this uh, having previously only really seen the director's cut because I wanted to see if the feeling was like uh, totally ruined by the choices that were made for the theatrical cut and i have to say the opening because like the opening monologue is from keitha sutherland's character and uh for people who haven't seen the movie uh, keitha sutherland in this plays um he's a human scientist who works for the strangers yeah it's kind of implied that he's forced to work for them yeah but he's kind of a um he's, a, he's an interesting character he's a collaborator if nothing else and spends most of the um, film in a bath Yes, because it's the one place they won't yeah. uh, pass <laughs> they don't. They don't like moisture. <laughs> and that's a, we'll get into this later, but that is, is a weird performance from Keith. Yeah, movie. very against time um, for, for him, I think. And I think he's great in this film, though. Like, he's really good. Yeah, I do as well. I mean, a lot of people actually kind of point him out as a weak link, but um, we'll get into this uh, later, later on. But the point is, it kind of opened, the theatrical opens with his narration kind of explaining to the audience, and it's taken from a scene that should appear later on in the movie uh, between him and um, Rufus Sewell. Uh, where he kind of explains the nature of what's really going down. And the thing about it is it does ruin the first act of this movie because the first act of this movie is supposed to yeah, be like... where's the intrigue? Yeah, and I was kind of saying this before we turned the mics on, but a movie that's often compared to The Matrix, right? Um, uh, it's like if that movie started with a monologue from Morpheus being like, the machines took over and now we live in a Matrix and then you had to watch the first act of Keanu Reeves being like, what's going on? What is the Matrix? It kind of... I wouldn't say that... I think Dark City gets away with it because... I mean, I, I would say if people are debating which version to watch, watch the director's cut, because it also has elements like... Um, yeah, upgrade. For some reason in the theatrical cut, the producers demanded that Jennifer Connelly's uh, sing, singing performances were dubbed over. And uh, it's, it's her singing in the director's cut, it's the dub in the uh, theatrical cut. That's a sp- oh, I didn't know that. That's a small detail, but um, it's very noticeable. But like, why? Like, because I, I watched the director's cut first because I have this film on Blu-ray, so I've got the yeah. I've both versions running. I was like, well, I'm going to watch the director's cut because if you have the option to watch the director's cut, nine times out of ten, you watch the director's yeah. cut. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah, I having that narration at the beginning would fucking ruin it because again like there's no mood there's no intrigue if you're just told yeah this is like a biome in space and there's the strangers and the psychic powers it's like right so now i know what's coming like it's better when like because that, that first initial scene where you see that like rufus Sewell has the psychic powers like that's a really yeah. cool little scene but like knowing he already has that is that it takes away all the surprise and yeah i it. think it and kind of broadly gets away with it because the mood of the movie is so effectively put across anyway that um it's very palpable. Yeah, I think the difference between the director... I, I think, like, if you're watching this for the first time, watch the director's cut. Because, uh, yeah. you know, the intrigue is more... <laughs> intriguing. And, like, when it gets to the bit where he actually sees the city, like, moving and, like, you see the buildings, like, grinding into place. When you've had the narration tell you, like, oh, this is just, like, a fake world that the strangers made, it's kind of different to when you don't know that and you're like, 
the fuck is going on? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That scene is crazy. Yeah, I think it... Yeah, the director's cut is just a more pure distillation of what this film is trying mm. to do. And yeah, the theatrical cut is just... It just seems like they, they... I think they had a very wrong idea of what audiences would expect from a film like this. I'd be interested to know whether or not the decisions that they made in regards to the theatrical cut had some bearings on its uh, lack of success, because obviously word of mouth in those days was one of the strongest things uh, that you yeah, could have for a movie. I, so if people saw it and they obviously knowing from the first sort of five minutes what's going to happen in the movie that kind of really takes people out of it so maybe people that's that's not the case just because the critical reviews were very positive i think um it's more just like a movie that like it kind of came out um at a time i guess it's kind of a weird pitch this movie because whilst it is you know tapping into that very late 90s thing of like what if reality is constructed around you? And this is and this is something actually Nolan talks about when he references his movies. Like he kind of compares this to his own Memento, uh, as well as like The Matrix and a few other examples where he was sort of saying like, there's this movement in the late '90s towards these kind of, on the surface almost neo-noirish thrillers that are really about like what if your reality wasn't what you thought it was. So like in the case of this, it's you know this yeah. alien construction in the case of the matrix it's the virtual reality in the case of memento it's like it's a reality that he's forgotten about you know he's kind of made his own world um i think ultimately what this movie suffers from is it came out before the matrix so yeah it's kind of like but that's also interesting because it came out a year before the matrix and the matrix tells a very similar story that touches on very, oh, very similar, similar ideas. And a lot of the iconography in that first one is very similar because they literally used the sets that were set up in Australia yeah. from this movie for The Matrix. So that scene at the start of The Matrix where Trinity is running across the rooftops, those rooftops are from Dark City. The spiral staircase you see in The Matrix, that's from this movie. There's literal sets that were left standing from Dark City that the Wachowskis filmed on the scenes from The Matrix on. That's how similar these That's two movies mad are. Mad that it's yeah. the same, yeah. And like even down to like in this movie, when you see this the true form of the strangers, it's these like sort of insectoid, tentacly yeah, style yeah. creatures. And again, that's also something that you see in the Matrix. Yeah, I was well. thinking actually, you know, when you see the because um, it kind of zooms into the through the eye right of one of the strangers, and you see yeah. the weird little like um, as you said, it's kind of insectoid, almost fish-like creature. It really reminded me, I don't know if you remember, from The Matrix where, um, you know, where they, where they quote-unquote bug Neo and uh, Smith yeah. puts that weird, like, yeah, robotic yeah, yeah. thing with the tentacles coming out. Like, it really reminded me of that. Like, yeah, the imagery yeah. is very similar. Um, I mean, there's also, like, obviously yeah, there's it's, thematic it's... similarities. Um, obviously, the, uh, the strangers are very similar to the agents in their story function. They are, yeah. And they, they, always have, they almost have that thing as well, where, like, Mr. Hand kind of... Um, this is Richard O'Brien's character, kind of parallels Agent Smith, where you have, like, the agent that kind of becomes more human, you know, through his interaction with the protagonist and, like, kind of starts to break away from the norm. Like, they, they kind of have that a little bit as well. I mean, these are all obviously classic tropes of, like, cyberpunk fiction, and you know. So it's it's not... I'm not in for a second saying that one ripped the other off. Um no, I think I was saying this to somebody the other day because we were talking about um, Dark City and the Matrix and stuff. And uh, yeah, a lot of people do go, oh, well, you know, certain 
people will say that the matrix ripped off dark side I, I don't think that's the case at all i think that you know as you say these are quite common ideas in science fiction and just the way that sort of cinema was going around that time these kinds of stories were going to be told like I think what the matrix has the that this movie doesn't is like it condenses all those disparate influences into something that was just very palatable to the late 90s masses right like and in fairness to uh alex proyas the Wachowskis were never able to recapture that bottled lightning again, um, mu- much true. as they've tried over the years. God love them. Um, but that, like that first Matrix movie, like it's just aesthetically perfect for the time that it came out in. Whereas I think what this movie has, although it's very similar thematically, is it's kind of a weirder sell, right? It's like, oh, it's kind of like a noir movie. It's set in the thirties, but like there's this big sci-fi twist, and it's kind of like, okay, what? <laughs> especially at the time it came out it's kind of yeah. like what are we doing it's like a it's like a 30s like detective movie but it's also this weird sci-fi movie. like it's a combination of elements that i think you and i both would be very drawn towards and there's certainly a subsection of the audience Absolutely. that would, would also be drawn towards it but it's a bit more it's a bit more niche in its presentation, I suppose. To touch on what you were saying, like, you know, The Matrix is just more palatable to, a, like, a mass audience because mm-hmm. not only, like you say, is it very visually perfect for the kind of story it's telling, it is also an action movie, yes. which Dark City really isn't, apart from, no, like, the It has one, one Akira battle at the end. Yeah, know? like, that's this quite, like, a lot of this movie, like you say, is just, you know, dark alleyways and characters kind of smoldering at each other and, you know, people being like, I'm not crazy no you're not crazy that's the truth you know it's it's a lot of you know mm. sort of conversational pieces and stuff like that whereas yeah the matrix is a big action movie it was very zeitgeisty because you know like this the matrix came out around the time when like the internet was uh, becoming widely used in the home and stuff so it was tapping into things that you know like general fears about yeah. like technology and how it would encroach upon also, our lives and stuff the matrix and this is something that definitely scuppers dark cities like if you watch the trailers for Dark City, again, it kind of gives the movie away a bit. Mm. Whereas The Matrix's early um, advertising, in fact, pretty much all of its advertising, the Wachowskis were very strict about this, was just, what is The Matrix? Yeah. Like, they, none of the, if you go back and watch the original, I'm talking about the original trailers, not like post-release trailers, the original trailers, they never ever in the trailers say, the world is a simulation. They yeah. never say, this is a computer program. They just say, you know, something. You know, it's like the Morpheus speech where you know something's wrong. It's on the tip of your tongue. You never, never say. And then, like, what is the Matrix? Is like the tagline, right? And it's like this. And you know, they show all this kung fu shit and stuff, and people are into that, obviously. But like, I think again with this movie, it's a classic example of like they weren't confident in the way that Warner Bros., <laughs> which is ironic to say now, yeah. um, <laughs> Warner Bros. and uh, the Wachowskis were with the Matrix, where they clearly were like, we've got something here let's intrigue people which is kind of what this movie would have needed in the the advertising i think yeah it's kind of the reverse (laughs) because when you think about it um the matrix makes it very clear early doors what's happening like the Mm. reveal of what's going on in the matrix comes quite early in that movie where you find out it's like a simulation it kind of comes at the end of the first act right like when you you watch it when you watch it again it is built up to like it takes um like it's that's the thing about the first I mean this is not the Matrix review we'll get back to Dark City in a minute <laughs> but when you watch the first Matrix it is quite like I think it's like a good 30 or 40 minutes before they actually have that scene where Morpheus is like hey listen here's the straight dope like obviously it's hinting towards it but um, it's, kind of, it's one of those movies it's hard to watch now 
and have the same impact that it did when you first yeah, saw it. Yeah, because A, you know what's happening, yeah. and B, you know what happened post that movie. You know, they made three more of them. <laughs> also, we lived through Matrix mainly, you know, we're children of the 90s. We remember when What If The World Was A Computer System was the most mind-blowing idea anyone had ever conveyed, right? And I think that's also something that, like, to round it back to Dark City, I think that's why it doesn't quite have the same latch on popular culture like the advertising campaign is one thing but the other thing is like the idea of this movie is less it doesn't it doesn't grab you as, as hard as like what if everything was virtual reality like that's an idea that anyone can understand yeah it's a you know a mind-blowing philosophical concept that pretty much any dickhead can understand whereas this movie is kind of like what if right and bear with me what if you lived in the 1930s mm-hmm, but you were like a modern person and uh, it was always nighttime, never daytime. And um, sometimes you go to sleep and you have different memories when you wake up and you're basically a completely different person. And the reason that this happens is some aliens from an unknown planet, galaxy, whatever, are running an experiment to try and understand the intricacies of the human soul. You kind of go, yeah, I can understand. That's not a pithy elevator pitch. No, is it? you know. The Matrix says, what if you lived in computer? <laughs> exactly. Whereas this is like, what if man thought he was serial killer, but not actually because aliens? <laughs> Doesn't have the same, I mean, you know... To you and to I, yeah. we, we definitely go, tell me more. <laughs> and is chased by Richard O'Brien. Please tell me yeah. more. <laughs> so let's get into the specifics of this movie a little bit. I, I kind of almost don't want to harp on plot too much because I want people to watch this movie. Yeah, no, so I don't absolutely. want to give everything away. It's, it's again, it's it is a real like treasure of its time, and I, mm. I like I was saying earlier, I think it is a deeply influential movie in so many ways because like, I was getting shades of things like Bioshock, for example. I think oh, borrows sure, a lot sure. from Dark yeah. City, um, and again, like I think. The, the sort of Akira battle at the end, I was, and again, we won't go too in-depth in that because, again, watch the movie. Um, mm. But when I was watching that and, like, the way that that battle is constructed, I was like, this feels like the one of the first times in cinema you saw something like what the Marvel movies are now doing. You know, yeah. those sort of big-scale battles. I was, I was trying to think to myself, I was like, when did we ever see this on this scale prior to this? And I couldn't really think of many examples. It's kind of crazy how big that final showdown gets, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is mad. And like what like this movie was made for twenty seven mil, which again, like back when it was made was a lot more money than what it is now. But yeah. still. Like, look, I mean impressive. the movie looks great. I mean there's some yeah. some points where I think there's there's some like pretty obvious uh, miniatures. Yeah, um, and some some CG that's not aged particularly well, but oh, you know, yeah. the, we the can forgive effect, that. And I mean, like, you know, Professor quickly going back to the fifth blue. element, I yeah. think that's one thing about the fifth element is it's quite sparing in its use of like in your face mm. CG. Um, there's a few wonky bits, but yeah. overall, that's more practical effects than anything else. Yeah, um, and this is for the most part too, but there's definitely some uh, slightly shoddy uh, um, CGI moments. Yeah, but again, it's I, that stuff doesn't bother me personally because I feel like if you can always just look at it within the context and the time that it was made, you can you can get by it. I know for some yeah, people, like, it's a massive thing. For the most part, this movie is practical sets. Yeah, you know. It's all about the noirish lighting, the kind of moody, like... Um, and again, you know, like we mentioned as well, that's a budgetary thing. Like, you can disguise your sets with noir lighting. Like but this movie doesn't look cheap. It, it doesn't, no. Expensive. But I, 
But I think <laughs> it's you know, like spent a lot of money on it. I think there is definitely points where um, they definitely did use the noir lighting to sort of paper over cracks to make things look better than what. Oh, I'm sure. Were. I'm sure. Like, because you know that's the just the overall kind of effect thing. is very. Um, it, it 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 seems like it's very deliberately lit. Like yeah, every frame kind of um, every frame is a painting, as they say. Yes. Um, and it is very uh, yeah. Like, this is kind of what to me like. This is not a movie that I watch super regularly, but um, I, I do watch The Crow more regularly than this. I yeah, well, the, the Crow is a bit more of a breezy, <laughs> breezier yeah. time, I guess. Whereas this movie is very um. It's very kind of dark and slow and heady, and I like it for that. Um, you know, I like the kind of ambiance this movie has. You know, there's many, many shots of uh, Richard O'Brien kind of lit with like sickly blue light from below, and this movie just knows how to use Richard O'Brien in this. Yeah, role. he's perfect. I believe the the uh, the role was written for him. Um, I, I did a little bit out. of. I did a bit of leaning in uh, sort of into the research for that because we talked about this off mic. It turns out that the role wasn't written specifically for him. It was written, like when he wrote the characters of the strangers, he pictured Richard O'Brien based on him playing Riff Raff in Rocky Horror right. Picture Show. Like that's just how he imagined those characters. Yeah, that to checks look. out because there's a lot of, because they are a race of Richard O'Brien's. Yeah. <laughs> like weird, slightly camp, bold guys. <laughs> and supposedly, just due to like a chance meeting, Alex Proyas met Richard O'Brien and told him about the movie. And then just realise that actually Richard O'Brien is the perfect person to play the role. Great. Like I think yeah. this is easily Richard O'Brien's like best performance in, yeah, in a movie. He, yeah, like and as much as everyone always will remember him from two things, which is either mm. you know Rocky Horror Picture Show, or for me also Shock Treatment. Um, everyone also remembers yeah. him for Crystal Maze. That's the other thing. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, people yeah, of a certain age. Yeah. yeah, he's so good in this though. Like, Sh- showing our vintage there, Mark. <laughs> Crystal Maze fucking slaps. I wish they would bring that it back does. with Richard O'Brien. They did so bring it back. Oh, they brought it back with Richard Iwadi. To be fair, if you're going to replace Richard O'Brien, Richard Iwadi is a good replacement, in my opinion. I think he did a pretty good job. I he did. He did a very good. admirable job. He brought his own little quirks mm. to the show, which I think is what you need. Anyway, this is not the Crystal Maze cast. Um, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's jack this in. Season three is just us watching old episodes of the Crystal Maze on Bitbox. <laughs> if you want that, guys, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, please let us know. Oh, if you want that to be a Patreon exclusive. Um, yes. Anyway, so uh, yeah, we should also shout out. Like, I do want to talk about the Strangers. I like that. There's uh, one of the things I love about the Strangers is that, like, because they say that. Um, the like little fish aliens are like puppeteering corpses. Yeah, basically is the idea, and that becomes very disturbing because there's like a child stranger that you see all the way yeah. through the movie, um, <laughs> who is always wielding a knife. <laughs> a point. Out. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you see him like carving uh, spirals into one of John's supposed victims at one point. Um, Isn't it Melissa George's character? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dice yeah. It up. <laughs> also, I want to shout out that one of the other strangers we see a lot of, who I think is Mister Book who hangs around with uh, Richard O'Brien, uh, is played by Bruce Spence from the Mad Max movies. Mm-hmm. Um, very recognisable if you're a fan of those movies. Uh, uh, the other person as well of note in terms of The Strangers uh, is... I don't know, Mr. Book is uh, played by Ian Richardson. Oh, shit, yeah, of course. Mr. Sorry. Wall is Bruce Mr. Spence. Mr. Wall is Yeah, Bruce yeah, Mr. Spence. Book yeah, is And you were going to shout Richardson. out... I was also going to shout out Ian Richardson. 
the great, um, the the late great Ian the Richardson. Late great, yeah. Um, he yeah. was in the original House of Cards, among other yep. things. And um, I'm going to have to slip this in because uh, I, this suddenly occurred to me watching Dark City. So Ian Richardson is in this movie, uh, as is Rufus Sewell. And mm. so that is a reunion for a movie uh, that I have told you about numerous times that I want to cover on the show because it is one of the most depraved and grottiest fucking movies I've ever seen. Michael Winner's Dirty Weekend. Oh, uh, I didn't know Ian Richardson was Ian Richardson is in it in Brownface. I want to point that out. Oh, wow. That, okay. that is a thing. He plays uh, this kind of like, um, I don't even know how you describe his character. His name's Nimrod. And he is the person that the main character goes to talk to who basically tells her, you can either be a lamb or the slaughterer. He convinces her to kill Rufus Sewell's character, who is the pervert that lives across the road that steals her knickers off the washing line and wanks off with them whilst giving her phone calls. Awesome. That's what I love about Sewell Lee, is that, I mean, we should talk about Rufus Sewell. I like him in this movie. I like him in general. Oh yeah, um, he's he has a certain intensity to him as an actor, and he that he, yeah. he achieves that with just his his face. I think like he just looks think, intense think, at all times. When you watch this movie, it's kind of a it's a stark reminder of like he never quite broke as big as you'd think he would. But also, no, he's great. He is you, great. You totally see why because like watching this movie, I'm like, this man is what I find charming about him is that he is deeply off putting. And like that's kind of one of the things I like about this movie because obviously the whole thing is like you're supposed to be questioning has he gone insane? Is he the serial killer? And you know, is it a good thing that he has these psychic powers? Because at the end, you know, he kind of says, uh, oh, "I can remake the world as I see fit," and it's not played as like, "and that's a good thing." It's played as like, <laughs> <"Row."> <laughs> you know. Um, and I like that about Sully. Uh, one thing I was thinking whilst watching this is if. Uh, if Sully was about uh, 10 to 15 years younger, he'd totally have been Loki in those Marvel movies. Like, oh, 100%, yeah. That would Definitely. have been Sully. Yeah. Big man Saul. Um, what he is doing at the moment, the last movie I saw him in, was M. Night Shyamalan's Old. And I still haven't seen that. I mean, that's a bonus episode waiting to happen. <laughs> I okay. need to see you react to this movie, man. I mean... I'm, I'm going to say on the record, I mean, I know Abdul is going to scold me for this. He's going to message me the second he hears this part of the, the podcast. I'm going to say on the record, old, go and see it. Good movie. Well, hang on. Not a good movie. <laughs> good in the sense of you won't regret watching it. No, I genuinely recommend it. It's like, it's one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's one of those movies. I mean, we're detouring a bit from Dark City, but it's one of those movies, old, which is like... I don't understand how anyone thought this movie was going to work. Like, there's so many of the decisions in it are just fundamentally wrong. Um, in fact, so the like only cats, correct, then. yeah, the, the only decision that is correct is Sully, because he is great in that movie. Unironically, he's just great in everything. Like, he's just one of those actors that every time he pops up, he's just great. Like, he's he doesn't get enough work, in my opinion. He had a supporting role in the film A Knight's Tale. He did. I'm looking through his filmography as we're speaking now, and I'm, there's a lot of stuff that I just haven't seen that he's in. Remember the film A Knight's Tale, Mark? Is that... With Heath Ledger. Right, I was about to say, I was thinking of the Martin Lawrence one originally. <laughs> no. <laughs> what was that, Black Knight was that called? Yeah, that's Black Knight, yeah. <laughs> no, um... That is a pun title as well. <laughs> A Night's Tale, this, you know what, A Night's Tale is one that might be right for a revisit, because I remember it being quite good, but... I know a lot of people also, that are big into that one, yeah. 
not seen it for yonks. But also, that is, it's, it's one of those movies where it's like, what is this cast? Like, who assembled this cast? Because you've got Heath Ledger in the lead. Uh, Sully kind of plays a... Is he the villain in that? I think he is. Um, he's either the villain or he's like one... I can't remember. We'll, we'll get back to that. I think he's probably the villain. Um, Alan Tudyuk is in this movie? Yeah, I'm looking at the, the cast actor now. actor whose name I can't remember, but he's uh, Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones, is in it as oh, well? Oh, um... Well, he's in the Full Monty and stuff as well. I can't remember. I know who you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, fantastic actor, but cannot recall the man's name for the life of me. Mark Addy is his name. Yes, Mark Addy, yes. Um, and you've also got, like... Uh, um, Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany, thank you. You've also yeah. got Paul Bettany in the movie. That's just, it's, it's, it's like... It's a cast of actors where I'm like, individually, these are all excellent actors. I would never have thought to combine these people into a medieval comedy. Well, like, I mean, like speaking of just great cast, like obviously we mentioned that like, the Fifth Element's got a great cast. Dark City has a really good cast. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, cause... obviously we've we've talked about Sully, but also Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, and I love Jennifer uh, Connelly. She's, yeah, favorite she's of this great. podcast. Yeah. Married to Paul Bettany. Mm, mm. That's very true, actually. Connections. Uh, yeah, no, even far back as Dario Argento's Phenomena, which is a film she apparently refuses to talk about in interviews. <laughs> Fair. Um, yeah, she was in that before she was in Labyrinth. Um, yes, she was. Yeah, yes. it was one of her first movies. <laughs> uh, I always think of her from Requiem for a Dream. And then do you get a bit sad when you think about I her do. in Requiem for a Dream? <laughs> um, no, she's that, great in this That's movie, another though, film that if you want to ruin your day. Watch that. Yeah. But let's talk about Dark City some more. Um, <laughs> we should. <laughs> yeah, no, she's uh, she's great in this movie, Jennifer Connelly. She's kind of, um, it's not exactly a thankless role, but she's kind of playing that sort of, she's bewildered wife for most of it. Then obviously yeah. as the movie goes on and we realise like the human being's uh, memories are implanted, there's that interesting question of like, well, does she love John just because it's implanted in her brain to do so? And in fact, they wipe her memory of him later on. Um which leads to an interesting moment where at the end he meets up with her at his newly constructed beach that he made with his brain. And she's got a different name and he knows everything about her and she's obviously mind wiped. And yet he's on the chirps, which... I mean, I think let's assume that eventually he'll reveal the nature of things to her. But... You'd hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> that's a little ethically dubious in my but opinion. again i think that in a way plays into the, like you said at the end of this movie where he he says that he can rebuild the the world in his image and mm. but that's not necessarily a good thing like because ultimately we don't know a whole lot about this character other than he's able to not only uh tune is what they call it the psychic powers are called tuning yeah. don't they like not only is he able to tune but like they imply that he could actually have been a murderer at some point they imply yeah. that he, you know, we don't know anything about him. He could be a fucking absolute murderous psychopath, and now he's got psychic powers to rebuild the world. I don't think this is a very happy film, but <laughs> no. And I thought it was interesting when, because um, in his pursuit of John, uh, Richard O'Brien's character has memory, has John's what would have been John's memories implanted into his head, so that he can kind of figure out like, oh, where would he go? Who would he hide with? Sort of thing. And that's kind of a really interesting, like, weird dynamic in this movie where he kind of starts to take on the aspects of, like, what would have been serial killer John. Yeah. Like, you see him being, like, more sadistic and being more ruthless than he already was. 
and he even has that bit where he's got Jennifer Connelly at like knife point and he's like should I kill her now it's what you would have done um I think that's kind of interesting like that whole thing this is kind of what I mean about this movie is like it's kind of esoteric right <laughs> like there's, yeah there's there's kind of more going on between the lines as it were like again like yeah. particularly with like Jennifer Connelly's character like you say like it, it's not particularly a thankless role but there's you kind of have to look at what goes on with her and you have to piece a lot of it together and sort of yeah. think about what you're not seeing on screen more with her i think yeah yeah and it's kind of similar with like william hurt's character the detective yeah where, um, uh, who I has a name that makes is... me laugh what was it again uh, it's like bum it... gardener or something stupid. bumstead or something <laughs> Bumsteiner or something, right? Like, <laughs> Bumstead, um, that's his name, Mr. Bumstead. Bumstead which sure. is only funny um, to us because we're A, British, and B, immature. <laughs> no, Bumstead is funny. Um, <laughs> Just because it has the word bum in it. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of interesting as well because he goes from, obviously, he try, he's trying to, you know, he fingers John for being the killer, but then he slowly um, fingers in the 1930s detective sense, Mark. I saw I Not in the round the back of KFC on a Saturday night sense. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you know where to find him. Um, yeah, no, uh, but then obviously he slowly comes to realise that like John's wild theories might be correct, and he kind of accompanies him in, uh, you know, trying to uncover the mystery, and ends up getting blown out into space for his troubles. He does. Um, <laughs> Do you know, another thing this reminded me of, weirdly, which I'd be surprised if it wasn't an influence on, was, um, do you remember that TV show, uh, Life on Mars? Uh, yeah, I've not seen it for a very, very long time, though. The John Sim, Philip Glenister show. Yeah, It's got yeah, shades very... of that, right? Like, the idea of, like, uh, oh, it's kind of set in the past, like, the 70s in that case. But it's just like, what is the nature of reality? We've got to come to the bottom of it, kind of thing. Like, obviously, it's a very different conclusion in that show, but I'd be surprised if they weren't a little bit influenced again i think this um, is a slightly more widely seen film than what we may suspect it well, it's, is. A, it's a cool classic of this yeah point. and i think like particularly amongst like filmmakers and people that are really interested in film mm. i think not only like filmmakers would be very attracted to it for like the visual aspects and people that are just like kind of into film are the types where if somebody would go oh, i really like the matrix Anybody else who's into movies are going, oh, if you like The Matrix, you're going to like Dark yeah, City. you're going to like Dark and City. And that's, again, that's one of the reasons I heard about this film. Yeah. I think that's kind of fair, but I also think, like, like we were saying, Dark City kind of has this almost, is slightly more nebulous and esoteric than The Matrix. Like, at the end of The Matrix, you're kind of like, you know, Neo flies into the distance and you hear, like, Rage Against the Machine on the soundtrack and you're like, fuck yeah, we're going to smash the system. Whereas the end of this movie is like, hmm. <laughs> you know? what if he becomes system <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah it's like is this good question mark like that's yeah, the end like, of this movie yeah the matrix makes you feel hopeful dark city makes you feel a bit dirty <laughs> yeah you're just kind of like so our heroes were uh, a detective who's dead um a potential psychopath maybe but maybe he broke his programming but maybe he didn't who now has the power of a god and what amounts to a Nazi sympathizer who had a change of heart, question mark. You kind of go... Mm. <laughs> and an amnesiac woman who's just... <laughs> and an amnesiac woman who's just buffeted along by all of this. <laughs> I also like that like, the ending of Mr. Hand in this movie is quite... Um, again, it just kind of plays to this open-endedness where he just catches up with John after John... Because uh, we should say like the significance of John building the beach psychically is like they all have this memory of Shell Beach, right? 
Yeah, but no one knows a, how to get there. No one knows how to get there because it doesn't exist. And uh, there's a point where Kiefer Sutherland is like, they force him to take them to Shell Beach. And he reveals like, it's just a, like a billboard. Yeah. That they, that they just use to give everyone the same memory. Um, but then at the end of the movie, John actually just constructs the real Shell Beach. Um, but there's a point where um, Mr. Han turns up and he's like, hey, I'm dying, but let's just have a little chat about what we've been through. <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> I guess that's what's happening in this movie. <laughs> like, I feel like really... that's like the human aspect seeping into yeah. him again. Like he just wants a sense of comfort as he's dying, which yeah, and typically he talks the strangers like wouldn't entertain. He, yeah. he knew that he would die from taking on the, the memory implant. So again, it kind of calls everything he does in the movie to question. Because like, yeah, he's pretty dogged in his pursuit of John, but it seems like his overall ambition was to understand, was just to understand what it was to be human. Yeah. And like his pursuit of John Murdoch was kind of incidental to that. Because Mr. Hand isn't the, the boss villain at the end of this. No, it's Mr. Book. Who's yeah, it's Ian Richardson's character, which he has the psyche battle with. Then at the end, Mr. Hand kind of has this slightly more esoteric conclusion where he's just like, yeah, I, I guess I felt what it was like to be human. Anyway, I'm going to die now. Goodbye. And yeah, and John uh, <laughs> says the whole thing to him about how to try and understand what it is to be human. He was looking in the wrong place. He yeah, says that yeah. they were looking in the mind, which is not where you, you should be. So it's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's, it's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that that this movie goes into that is... Yeah, because I'm, I'm, there's a lot of uh, people that seem to like back then were like, oh, the Matrix is like a real head scratcher. It's like, it's not uh, <laughs> for the time, maybe. I mean, the, the Matrix is you know, it's it's a it's a sci-fi thriller. I don't think, and it has you know, it has big ideas. Yeah, I've never particularly found the Matrix to be like a confusing movie or like a. No, it's know. got very big ideas and it's very ambitious, mm. and I think. It kind of bombards you with a lot of like the action and visual stuff. So maybe you know, to some yeah, people, yeah. I think it also the Matrix has a more clear. It's more clearly funneled into this idea of like fight, like raging against the machine, fighting against yeah. the system. There's there's kind of more clear cut good and evil in that movie, yeah. whereas much like how it's so heavily steeped in film noir, there's a lot of morally grey stuff going on in Dark City. Yeah. And characters aren't as clean cut as what you may assume and them to everything's be. Everything's just more ambiguous anyway, because like you never find out what the aliens are exactly. They're just the strangers. They have their yeah. bizarre thing that they're doing. You yeah, never we... really understand why it's important to them to investigate humans in this way. They kind of they kind of say about like oh it's to do with prolonging their life or yeah they touch yeah. on it but it's never fully yeah. explained like because Kiefer Sutherland's character is very much just the you know the exposition machine in this film mm. uh, and he delivers it lisping exposition yeah. machine. <laughs> okay it's a great performance from him as well I yeah. think he's genuinely really good at this um, yeah he's very it's kind of again it's an, it's kind of an off putting performance I think it's supposed to be like it's that's what he's trying to do. I think that's kind of what makes this movie again like to certain people this movie is going to be a classic but to certain people not so much it's like it's like the characters are weirdly off-putting like there's no way to latch onto because even like William Hurt's character is like the detective who kind of comes around as the movie goes along like he's pretty much a dick for most of it right yeah i guess Jen jennifer connelly's the only like nice character right? the only like, truly sympathetic character yeah i'd yeah. say so um 
but no yeah i think overall like i really really like this movie it's got some really like just really distinctive imagery um mm-hmm. i always get a massive laugh out of the bit where you see the people in the city get put to sleep and that couple just face plant into their bowls of soup that's <laughs> fucking brilliant <laughs> it's very very funny I, I do think there is social commentary in this movie because those couple wake up that couple wakes up and they're immediately talking about like hiring and firing staff and like you know how the, yeah and well, they, they change like, class, don't they? That's the thing. Yeah, they, yeah. They're, yeah, they're like a, a sort of low-rank couple living in a shoddy little apartment eating soup for dinner. And then when they wake up, their table has expanded in size. And yeah, they're talking yeah. about like how many people they're going to fire and all this. And yeah, yeah, I think... I mean, it's again, it's slightly more esoteric than The Matrix being like, the system is oppressing you, fight back. Whereas this is kind of being like, yeah, the system is oppressing you. And also it's fundamentally like unknowable and the rules don't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> like even in your effort to empower yourself to fight against it, are you not just putting someone else in power who's just as dubious and hard to know as anyone else? Which is Because John even says at the end of the movie, yeah. like, all those memories are not me. It's like, okay, who are you then? And that question is never answered by the movie. Well, there's so <laughs> many unanswered I, questions, isn't there? Like which I think is based personally. Like, like I watch it being like, how far away from Earth actually are there? How many people have they actually abducted? How long have they been doing this? Like, and like, what remains of the human race outside? Of yeah, this? like, what year is this? Because like, like you say, like it's supposed to be like a nineteen thirties noir thing, but like there is like an like anachronisms. Like there are things yeah. that exist that shouldn't exist within that time. Yeah, frame. Like, aesthetically, it kind of reminds me of like uh, Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, Blade Runner um, kind of springs Blade, to mind Blade a little Runner, bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was also thinking. Um, a city of lost children and delicatessen yeah, yeah, yeah. and Jeanne and Karu movies. Yeah, it's again um, well look much like how the strangers say that like the idea of the city is very sort of cherry picked from everywhere. Like you can tell that Alex Preuss has really kind of cherry picked from a lot of his influences. And yeah, it's just it's, yeah. it all just kind of amounts to being just and I know it's a word that gets thrown a lot, but it's just a very interesting film and one that I yeah. think you know does deserve rewatches. I mean, I don't know if I'll rewatch it again because it is a bit slow and you know moody, and that is good when I'm in the mood for it, but I'm not always in the mood for that. It reminds me of like a Ray Bradbury short story, like it has that kind of slightly like, "Ooh, what's going on here?" And then at the end of it, it's somewhat answered, but somewhat not. You know, like almost like a Twilight Zone episode or something like that, right? Where like. I think for sci-fi fans, this is a this is a must-watch. It's kind of my take. Yeah. I think if you're not into sci-fi specifically, you might watch this and go, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's one that I would definitely recommend, but I know that it's it's not going to sit well with everybody. And I know we you probably appreciate the aesthetic, you know. Like yeah, absolutely. Very, and I think a lot of people will be able to watch this and see how it's influenced other things further down the line because it's, it's very apparent just how much influence this films have. I mean, same with the Crow. To be honest, like the Crow has had a lot of like influence on like sort of oh, visual styles and movies. Definitely. Which you know I mean, that movie's I, great. I'm not the first to point this out, but Heath Ledger's Joker is definitely inspired by Brandon Lee's Crow, right? Absolutely. Like, there's, <laughs> there's there's like a through line you could draw there. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I mean, they're different characters, obviously, but like def- definitely the way they visually interpreted the Joker in that movie is definitely riffing on the the Brandon Lee Crow. Yeah, and I think more people should uh, should uh, make that connection. To be honest, because it is quite apparent, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, you know, these the, the things are influenced by a lot of different things. But yeah, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's definitely I mean, there. And influence is never a bad thing. That's the thing. I feel like no. a lot of the time, some people can go, "Oh, you know, it's it's too heavily influenced by this." It's like so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just as a side note, uh, watch The Crow. Again. Yeah. It holds up. The Crow is very good. Don't watch the sequels, though. Oh, no, let's not. <laughs> no. I saw the one with Tara Reid in it. Yeah, they're all bad. They yeah. keep threatening to remake The Crow, but it's just not going to work because I think it's just so fundamentally a like early 90s thing. That yeah. Some things just belong in their time and place, and that's fine. Like, you know. Yeah, so to kind of round up on Dark City, um, one of the things I did want to flag up before we go into Kino Inferno, um, I really like the way that the ending plays out where he's... Because uh, I've forgotten this uh, detail, but... Obviously, you see him, uh, John, this is, experimenting with his psychic powers as the movie goes on, and he can't quite use them to any great effect. But then, I but I was kind of thinking, watching it last night, like, well, isn't there like a big Akira battle at the end of this? How do they justify him suddenly being a god? And um, I love the way that that is done, because obviously Kiefer Sutherland like creates these memories throughout the movie. Like You see him, that, that's his purpose, is like yeah. the strangers couldn't understand like what humans would find significant basically is what they say so like they had to use a human to build these fake memories to make them take in the human mind so he injects john with like a lifetime of memories of him in various costumes like <laughs> training him how to use his psychic powers and i thought that was like a really clever idea that i'd completely forgotten was how they justified the stay of sex machina but it's yes. just um very, yeah, very I guess those well were the movie. Like, very, very well. Yeah, it totally works. Like you, you totally buy it. It totally sells because you see enough of these memories that you get. Like, oh, they're, like you see him like trying and failing as a child and stuff, and then it's like, oh, you've just injected like an entire lifetime's worth of psychic training into this guy's head. Which again, another parallel with the Matrix. Yep. Remember in that movie, <laughs> I know kung fu. Just saying. But um, yeah, okay. So Kino or Inferno, I'm I'm going to give this a Kino. Um, yeah. I think it's a it's a must watch for your sci-fi fans. I would recommend it to pretty much anyone. It's a really moody movie, as we say. It's kind of don't let our talk of the kind of esoteric nature of the movie put you off. Like I think it still works as an entertaining thriller. Um, what I'm kind of what I kind of mean when I say it's slightly uh, open ended and esoteric is like the emotional tone of the movie is not like hooray, the heroes won against the awful villain. It's kind of like, okay, okay, okay. Like, there's an uneasy feeling from the start of the movie to the end of the movie. Um, I think that's very deliberate. Like, I don't think that's... Like, like, yeah. I'm not like, they forgot to put in heroes and villains. You know, I think the point of the movie is to make you feel uneasy and to kind of question what you're seeing. Um, but yeah, with that in mind, I- I'll give this a keynote. Um, yeah, it's a good movie. Watch it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a keynote from me as well. It's a strong recommend. I think it's, uh, and like I said previously, it's a very interesting film. And you say the sort of esoteric nature of it and the sort of thematics of it. Because a lot of people always refer to this movie as being quite Kafkaesque. Um, mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the sort of better examples of that kind of fiction being applied in a movie that I've seen. And I just think, yeah, it's, it's great to see a movie like this that toys around with those concepts that isn't so clear cut in being like good evil. And which yeah. again the Matrix does. I mean, and I'm not the biggest Matrix fan, admittedly. I think the movie's pretty great, but I was never as hyped on it as most other people were. I think Dark City is probably more my thing. Um, but if I'm in the mood for something more entertaining, the Matrix is probably the one to go for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not to make this a comparison a, podcast. Um, no, but I think the thing with Dark City is it's in a position where, unfortunately, you can't really talk about it without comparing it to the Matrix. Yeah, because. 
it somewhat has always lived in its shadow, despite the fact that the Matrix. Well, that's what came people say when they recommend it. They say it's the Matrix before the Matrix, right? Like, yeah. Um, always... I, I would say it's kind of Inception before Inception, like a lot. Yeah, of the, um... it's definitely got more in common with Inception than what it does the Matrix in a sense. Um, I think you know it's kind of you can see the DNA of uh, Inception in this movie, right down to in fact when you see Keith Sutherland working on his uh, maze design, I think that's the exact same maze that Ariadne draws. In, you know, in Inception, where she's like, he's like, draw a maze in three minutes that I can't solve in five or whatever the fuck it is. Um, so like that that concept I think is a direct lift in Inception I wouldn't where, be surprised to be honest yeah. um, I mean it's about constructing a dream world this is kind of about constructing a dream world it makes sense but, um, yeah certainly um, you can see this movie as influential on a lot of other stuff um, I think it's kind of like this is a movie that I find is kind of like it's a director's movie you know what I mean yeah. like, it's this got is a, movie a lot, that a lot of appeals film to that mindset yeah, yeah. A lot of film directors will cite this as like, oh, this was a particularly good kind of underrated movie. Um, it's, 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 it's a slight strange form, but I remember watching it and thinking about like its sort of thematics and stuff and thinking, do you know what? this? I feel like this is the kind of story that would work well in television. And I think we've kind of got to the point where TV is sort of like, do you know what, again, I think was this is definitely something of a, an influence on as well. I'd say Westworld. I think this is definitely... Oh, the TV show. Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. definitely lifting some ideas from this as well. No, I'd agree. It's certainly, well, I mean, that's that's a Jonathan Nolan involved in that, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, you know, Westworld is based on a, a movie from the yeah, 70s. Yeah. I'm just saying, um, I think those Nolan boys watch the same movies. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Um, um, yeah. Oh, and also just another interesting connection there is that David S. Goyer is one of the screenwriters. Of course, yeah. Went on to do the Batman movies with the yep. Nolan Bros. Yeah. Not that this is the Nolan fancast. It might as well be with you, around, mate. <laughs> We've just weirdly picked a lot of movies that kind of tie into him as well as doing Inception. Yeah, we 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 paid enough lip service to Nolan, so let's never speak of him again. So, Mark. If our listeners were looking for a film similar to The Fifth Element, or indeed Dark City, what would you recommend to them? Um, I think we one that came up earlier that you mentioned, I think Brazil is definitely one that I would say is almost like a sort of cross-section between these two movies. Mm. Like It's kind of got the sort of visual style of both in certain aspects, and it's definitely got the weirdness of The Fifth Element as well. Um, yeah, my pick would probably be Brazil. I'd say watch that. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm going give, to give you a two-hander here. My pick for uh, if people are looking for a movie and they enjoyed The Fifth Element, I'm going to recommend Barbarella. Yep. The classic 60s uh, soft porno in space. Um, <laughs> ge- genuinely a great movie. I've never known anyone to watch it and not enjoy it for its campy silliness. I was tempted to go Flash Gordon, but I feel like people have seen Flash Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Barbarella's Although a slightly I do, more obscure choice these I days. I do heartily recommend Flash Gordon. Of, of course, um, you, you should. Flash Gordon is a classic. And also, do you know what? If you're into some campy uh, kind of late 60s sci-fi, I said I was going to leave it at two recommendations, but I'm not. Um, I'm also going to put on the fifth element camp. Watch uh, Planet of the Vampires, the Mario Bava um, masterpiece. That's that the is, word a, for it. is an interesting pick. I've never actually seen that. I, you'd, I know you'd, of mate, it, you'd love Planet of the Vampires. I, I feel like I would. It feels exactly like my kind of movie. It's the kind of movie you'd watch and you'd be like, I understand why Aiden likes this. This is like what the world looks like in his head. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, so that's that. 
what I was going to say for Dark City, um, obviously The Crow, but that goes without saying. Um, I'm going to throw out there uh, Jean-Pierre Genet and Marc Caro's, uh, we mentioned earlier, City of Lost Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a similar, it's more fairy tale-ish than Dark City, um, but it has a very similar kind of uh, diesel punky, kind of grimy aesthetic. Um, yeah, it's just a really good movie that I feel like a lot of people haven't seen. Um, mm. It's a favourite of mine, as you know. Um, and it's, also, it's one of those movies where that uh, I feel like it, it's well known among certain circles, City of Lost Children, but it's almost like it's kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. And I want people to go, I want yeah, people to check it, it out. Really, it's a good movie. I don't really hear it get talked about that much anymore. Um, no, I think it was like a big kind of indie hit at the time, but now it's sort of not talked about among its you know, apart from I, I do have a novels. second recommendation. It's not a film though, and it's a tenuous link towards Dark City. But I feel like its its influence is definitely in this thing, and I love it. And more people should just watch it. And basically, I'm recommending Fringe. If you remember that, the TV series. I do remember this show because yes. I feel like they took a bit of influence from this from the the Strangers. Because in the in Fringe, they have the Observers. Who oh, are these, absolutely, yeah. yeah, the bald-headed yeah. guys who wear the suits who are always present at different events throughout time. And they they have very you similar big, energy. To, you were a big Fringe guy when Fringe was on. Mate, Fringe is the fucking nuts. It's so good. I absolutely adore it. I've got it on Blu-ray. I think it's one of the fucking like greatest TV shows of like, the modern era. It's so fucking great. Um, everyone should mm. watch it. If you if you like sci-fi TV, it's one thing that you should absolutely check out. It's got just great writing, great characters. I mean, show. we were trying to do this feature of just recommending movies that are similar to the movies that we saw uh, on the podcast. But if we're now just talking about TV shows from the 2000s that we enjoyed, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yep. It's on iPlayer still, I think. I enjoyed yep. that. Great show. Spartacus, Blood and Sand. Yep. Oof. John Hanna in that. Classic stuff. Anyway, okay. um... <laughs> Let's I end bloody loved now. Spartacus. I really did. <laughs> Mate, Spartacus is the bollocks. <laughs> There's so still good. quotes from that that we that because my dad watched it. Uh, we watched it together for the most part. Uh, there's a quote in that that he absolutely loves to to throw out there. Which is where John Hannah goes, "You kiss my cheek, only to finger my ass." <laughs> <laughs> which um, you know you should definitely uh, apply to daily life. Anyway, we've been Kino Inferno. <laughs> I've well, no, first of all. You can find us, uh, well, you can find Mark around the back of KFC on a Saturday night. But you can find the podcast on... I'll give you a bonus banquet, baby. You can find the podcast on Twitter. You can find it on Facebook. You can find it on Instagram. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it anywhere you would find podcasts, pretty much. Um, so that's that. That's cool. Next week... I'm going to confidently predict that we're doing movies about malls, shopping malls. Yes, we are. Excellent. I think um, we are. It's, it's going to be... Well, It's. I guess it is now, because I've said it on air, so it's canon now. Um, so it's going to be Paul Blart Mall Cop. I'm so Mark's sorry. Choice. I'm so Mark's sorry. Choice. Mark's choice. I'm probably going to have to pay for that as well. Um, <laughs> Paul Blart Mall Cop versus kevin smith's mall rats which was my choice um so it might be a rare instance of a double inferno next week so that's exciting (laughs) um that being said we've been kino inferno i've been aiden buckadine i've been mark smith and i've been richard o'brien cross-dressing gnome from the future
<laughs> that was good. I enjoyed that. My name's Brad Majors. Uh, this is my fiance, Janet Weiss. I wonder if you might help us. You see, our car broke down a few miles up the road. Do you have a phone we might use? You're away. Yes. It's raining. Yes. Uh... I think perhaps you better both come inside. <laughs> 